You're listening to episode 20 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring the origins of Batgirl and Dr. Midnight. to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and if I sound a little awkward on this episode, it's because I'm finally talking to a girl. That's right, you know there was only one guest I could possibly get to help me cover the origin of Batgirl. She's the host of Batgirl to Oracle, a Barbara Gordon podcast. Please welcome Stella to the show. How are you, my Hello. lady? Hey, besides getting over a cold, I'm super excited to be on this show. I'm honored to be asked, and of course, one of my favorite subjects, besides talking about myself, is talking about <laughs> is talking about Barbara Gordon. Well, thank you for powering through the cold. Um, we, we all have to do it from time to time. And yeah. honestly, I am really happy to have you on the show at last. This is terrific. Not just because you bring a female voice, a female perspective. I mean... I think I inject a fair amount of estrogen into every episode. <laughs> I could do better, but I try. But seriously, I've been a fan of Bad Girl to Oracle for a while, and I'm really thrilled oh, that you could be you. part of this show. Thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, well, Stella, in case some of your listeners are checking this podcast out for the first time, mm-hmm. I like to explain what Secret Origins was all about so they know what we're covering. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics with each issue telling or retelling or reimagining the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. So, Stella... Tell us a little bit about your Batgirl fandom. When did it start, and how did you discover this character? Yeah, I guess these are the secret origins of the the co-host that Mm -hmm. you have on there. Yeah, I was actually, you know, I was going on a walk today, and I was thinking about this because I, I figured you would ask this. And I think some people have an easy time of it that they can pinpoint, you know, this exact moment that there was just this love, and then they went forward from that. And I feel like my origin is very much... Uh, more organic. There are just a lot of pieces that sort of went into it. I had known of Yvonne Craig's portrayal in the 60s series, of course, and the animated series was something that I grew up on. So she was sort of always in the background. But for whatever reason, it was the summer of 2006 that I think was the, the big push. 2005 was the year that I really got back into comics, reading them, 
from month to month, uh, Civil War and Infinite Crisis were sort of the two that pulled me back into those two major comic labels. And I had uh, surgery on one of my feet, so I was sort of laid up, and I was looking for different things to uh, to read. And this is also the summer that I got into fan fiction, and the fan fiction actually revolved around Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon. And through this, I was like really intrigued into learning more about you know who this Barbara Gordon was uh, at that time. You know, she was Oracle, and one of the first things that I bought to get to know her more, which is my all-time favorite story now, was Batgirl Year One. And I read that and I fell in love with the character. And from then on, I, I think it's just this love story. So I guess that maybe that is that moment. But there are just so many pieces that go into it, you know, the fan fiction and, and all of that. But but Batgirl Year One was what really connected me with that character. And then, um, well, the podcasting history is a whole nother story. But from then on, I've just really been devoted to learning more about her and seeing how her character grew from, you know, just this this librarian with two uh, Princess Leia buns into uh, this uh, this wonderful woman. And then, of course, Oracle. And now we're back as Batgirl again. So it's been a great journey. Awesome. Awesome. You mentioned the uh, the Dick Grayson, Barbara Gordon fan fiction. Are you a, are you a Dick and Babs shipper? <laughs> what a question to ask, Ryan. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've gotten into fights with friends over it, uh, like Tom Panneries and Josh Bertoni. There have been debates. I am a diehard Dick and Babs shipper till the end. Actually, I knew the answer to that when I set you up, and I was figuring I was figuring that anybody who has listened to your show or Tom's show probably laughed the same way that yeah. you did at that question. Yeah. Um, for my part, I think she belongs with Jason Bard. Oh, you know, I really like Jason Bard, and I miss him, especially because I, I didn't really like what they did with his character when they introduced him uh, into batman eternal mm-hmm. um and they had such a good relationship it just sort of ended it like fizzled out and she went on to do her whole thing in, in dc and he was there and he worked with man bat and i do sort of wish that they would reconnect i don't think they can now in this universe but it, it, it's a great sort of what if story i think in the pre-crisis mm-hmm. continuity of dc comics and I know you've you've talked about this sort of at length on your own show, but I know you were you were hit hard by the recent passing of Yvonne Craig. Well, absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, that was sad. I mean, she. I'm I'm this probably speaking for an entire generation, but she was the Batgirl that I knew for the longest time. Mm-hmm. She was the way I I met the character. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of. Uh, my history with the Bat characters is, is weird, and I've mentioned this before because they were some of the first comics that I ever read. But I read – before I got into the monthly comics, I was actually reading a lot of the trade paperbacks and graphic novels that came out in the late 80s because they were everywhere after the Tim Burton movie came out. Like I, I joke, but not really joking that like if I, if I went with my dad to the auto mechanic, I could find a copy of Batman Year One sitting there. So The Killing Joke was one of the first Batman stories that I read. But I didn't even – like at, the, at that age, I didn't even process that it was the same character. Mm. Like I knew that it was this person named Barbara. Right. And I, and I knew that in the show, Batgirl was really Barbara. But it, like it, it took me a while for me to sort of like reach the age where I was like, oh, oh, yeah, oh. Oh no! That would sort of <laughs> go through that whole emotional process, but 
but yeah, that's uh, that's a shame that you never got a chance to. You you did say that you never talked to her. You never got a chance to interview yeah, her. Yeah, I never had that opportunity, unfortunately. That's too bad. That's that would have been great. I can imagine you would have had a a dynamite conversation. <laughs> you bet. I I almost wonder if I just would have had like this fat tongue and and unable to spit anything out, which is what happened to me the first time I ever met Tara Strong. I was just sort of standing there and my friend Joshua Tony was sort of speaking for me and saying, you know, she has this background. So I almost wonder if I would have been too starstruck to even talk to her, but it would have been a great experience just to be in her presence. Do you think you would have had the same reaction if you met Alicia Silverstone? (laughs) Um, I (laughs) I don't know. Actually, um, and and sometimes I wonder, you know, if she'd be easier to like get in touch with, or or maybe she's too too big of a star as well. But um, it's interesting because obviously that character is modeled after Barbara Gordon, but it's not Barbara Gordon. Um, what's her last name? It's Barbara. In the movie. Yeah, in the movie. She was I she was Alfred's that. niece or yeah. So I don't even remember. It was, but I can't remember what her last name was. It was a little different. But yeah, yeah, I think it'd be interesting really to meet any person who has portrayed Barbara in any fashion, whether it was live or audio. I think that would be sort of my life stream. The irredeemable Shug has entered the conversation. Woo! Hey, man. How's it going, Ryan? Sorry, man. I'm running, running real late. I apologize. Woo! All right. We good? Uh... Shag? Yeah, right. It's you, right, Ryan? Yeah. What are you doing I reckon, here? I recognize your little girly avatar. Yeah. What are you doing here? Dude, you you put it on Facebook. You, It's the Batgirl episode you're recording tonight. We talked about this. I'm here for the Batgirl episode, right? No, no. We, we are doing the Dr. Midnight story later. Dude, we talked about this. It's Batgirl. Come on. I mean, redhead... Smoking hot, skin tight costume. Barbara Gordon and I share the same birthday. We talked about this. I'm the perfect choice for the Batgirl episode of Secret Origins. Come on. No. Oh, Shag. Remember, I told you I was inviting Stella to cover the Batgirl origin. <laughs> yeah, I remember you saying that. You weren't serious, though. Or I mean, or seriously, dude. She, she, she she's a girl. <laughs> Come on. I mean, girls don't read comics. Everyone knows that. Ryan, what? Why? Why is it so quiet? Oh God, Stella, are you on the line? Yeah, I'm here. Hey, girl, how you doing? Um, a little worse now that you're on the call. Great. Uh, okay. All right, folks, this is a little bit awkward. Um. Here's what we're going to do. You guys sit tight for a quick promotional break while we get this mess sorted out. Um, Don't go away because somebody will be back in a minute to talk about the secret origin of Batgirl. Probably. Shazam! 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 
Hello, and welcome to the Shazam Cast, Earth's mightiest Captain Marvel podcast. I'm Jeff, your host. The Shazam Cast exists because Captain Marvel is both wonderfully enjoyable and horribly underappreciated. We aim to change all that. Join me on this exploration of the rich history and continuing impact of Captain Marvel. You can find Shazam Cast episodes on iTunes and, along with companion posts and additional content, on the web at shazamcast.com. I would also love to connect via social media. You can find the Shazam Cast on Twitter at the Shazam Cast and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the Shazam Cast. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Talk to you soon on the Shazam Cast. We're back. All three of us, me, Stella from Batgirl to Oracle podcast, and Shag from the Fire and Water podcast. Uh, during the break, folks, you'll be happy to know that Stella and I agreed on a safe word to boot Shag off the call in case it comes to that. <laughs> yeah, the safe word is Fifty Shades. <laughs> I was thinking it'd be nuclear. Nu- nuclear. <laughs> Can't say I that. I gotcha. Okay, folks, we're talking about Secret Origins, issue 20. This book was cover dated November 1987, but as Shag is oh so fond of saying, if you want to get a pristine copy on the day it hit the shelves, you need to set your Doctor Who DeLorean back to August 11th of 1987. I hate you. (laughs) The cover to issue 20 was drawn by Kevin McGuire with inks by Bob Wiacic. Ladies first, uh, Shag, what do you think of this cover? Um... I'm a huge, huge fan of Kevin McGuire. Uh, I love all of his work, especially this era. I will say Dr. Midnight looks pretty good. He does look like he's representing being blind as he's sort of feeling his way along the high wire. And Hootie looks great. Backroom, I feel like there's a bit of a miss here. While the colors contrast really well with the moon behind her, I feel like they missed an opportunity to really show off her costume. You know, she's the way she's posed, it, she's sort of leaning forward, and you get, you get some cool action with the arms and the feet. But I feel like you, know, you you would almost miss that it's her because the bat symbol's not showing, things like that. Yeah, Love and the- one wonders how she's not getting electrocuted since it looks like they're on um, maybe electrical wires. I think they're telephone wires, actually. <laughs> okay. Be before your time, probably. But um, mm-hmm. the, pole, the pole in the background there on the very bottom gives a distinct look of a, uh, a telephone pole versus a power pole, I would think. But yeah. who knows? Either way, she's she's balancing on the palm of her hand, which has got to hurt like hell. Yeah, yeah, I would I would agree that it is a bit of a, a misstep there, and it seems like Doctor Midnight has so much more details, and like her face is just so like <laughs> there's just a lack of detail, and she's you know so beautiful that you kind of want to focus in on the eyes and and the face and everything, and of course the bat symbol you can only see a little bit, so. But hey, at least they're in the same picture and they're sort of interacting with each other. I know people would normally tag this as me being sexist, but I'm really not trying to at this point. Do you think they drew her in such a way to accent the chest because she's bending forward and the chest is sort of the, what, the, what you see there? I was actually thinking the almost the complete opposite. She's not drawn in sort of the typical good girl pose that would accentuate both the front and back as – as artists tend to do, defying anatomical proportions or, or reality. I think her pose, she's sort of crunched up. It's, it's kind of minimizing her curves and her features, I think. Okay. I don't know. I, I think Kevin McGuire must have drawn this image 
um, over this past weekend because they're clearly in front of a supermoon. I also like it's, I didn't kind of realize it until now, but now I can't help but notice it. There's always kind of a a color um, similarity between Dr. Midnight and Robin. And this, at a quick glance, this almost feels like a Batgirl and Robin image. Mm. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. Which, I don't know, I think that's that's kind of cool. I can see that. By the way, as far as the simple, simplistic look on um, Barbara's for- face, I think that's more just a McGuire choice. He he usually goes oh. for as minimal lines as possible, mm-hmm. uh, which works in his favor usually. Although, but but you're right. I mean, Doctor Midnight's cape is like almost overly rendered as far as McGuire goes. And also, this is early days for McGuire. He had only been in the comic industry for a fairly short period of time at this. I mean, Justice League's probably on what issue eight, nine at this point, mm-hmm. and that's really some of his earliest work in comics. So, I mean, he's still defining his style at this point. Yeah, and, and like uh, I think Ryan said, you know, how Dr. Midnight sort of looks like he's feeling his way around because he's blind. The the form that Bads is taking could potentially, you know, suggest her athleticism, you know, as if she were doing some gymnastics and she's about to leap over the pole or because we focus mm. on that a lot in this particular issue, her track and everything. Mm. So maybe, who knows? That could be. I mean, that could be a very subtle imagery there. Like you said, the athleticism and the blindness. Her cape does contrast well with the moon, by the way. It looks nice. That it does. Yeah. I like the owl. Hootie! Yeah, I think. Hootie! And the bullfish. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You guys ready to get into this issue? Yes! <laughs> Since I was told to sit quietly in the corner, I didn't respond. I was expecting oh, she okay. sorry. Okay, well, Stella, would you do us the honor of recapping Barbara Gordon's story? Absolutely, absolutely. So this subtitle uh, for Bad's story is Flawed Gems. The writer is Barbara Kiesel, or Kessel, some people say. Pencil Rick Leonardi, inker Dick Giordano, and colorist Carl Gafford. So Batgirl is prowling the rooftops of Gotham City in pursuit of a fast-paced thief with a power pack. And she eventually catches him, only to discover that he is, in fact, a young teenager. And she's obviously shocked by his age. So she lets him go free with a stern warning. But the incident reminds her of the paths that she has traveled to become Batgirl. So then we have a flashback. When (laughs) When Barbara Gordon was a little girl, she lived with her family in Ohio. And her best friend was a girl named Marcy. And together they fantasized about one day becoming powerful superheroes. During one such escapade, Barbara learned some shocking news. Her mother, Thelma, had been killed along with her aunt in an automobile accident. As bad as things were for Barbara, they were even worse for her father, Roger. Roger began drinking heavily and taking his aggression out on Barbara. Not too abusive, but abusive enough. A few years later, Roger's drinking and self-abuse finally took its toll on him and he passed away. So Barbara leaves Ohio, and then she ends up staying with her uncle, James Gordon, and her aunt, who also happens to be Barbara, in Gotham City. Barbara's excited about living in the same city as the legendary Batman, and she even took every opportunity to learn as much about the Cape Crusader as she possibly could. So when she was 13 years old, she snuck into her father's darkened office to find him conversing with none other than the Batman. Before leaving, Batman actually secretly leaves a note behind for Barbara to find, and it read, Don't get caught, he'll get angry. The following morning, Barbara decided she wanted to 
learn self-defense. She convinced her adoptive father to allow her to enroll in a karate class. And like everything else, Barbara excelled in class and quickly became the envy of her instructors and her peers. More importantly than her martial prowess, however, was her academic achievements. She earned top scores in high school and was able to graduate two years early. And at 16, Barbara became the youngest student to ever enroll at Gotham State University. She graduated with honors and accepted a job as a research librarian at the Gotham Public Library. Before long, though, she was ready to live her true dream. So the police officers of Gotham City were hosting a policeman's charity costume ball. And in attendance were many of the city's wealthiest patrons, of course, including billionaire playboy Bruce Wayne. Barbara fashions her own costume and decides to crash the party as Batgirl, um, partially for fun, just to get at her father. But when she is about to arrive, she finds that a costume criminal called uh, Killer Moth, one of my faves, and his cronies have been planning on raiding the event and stealing the proceeds. So Batgirl swings into action for the first time and succeeds in driving Killer Moth away. And then Batman arrives at the scene and basically tells Batgirl that she needs to get out while she can and uh, chastises her for her reckless behavior. Despite his harsh criticism, however, Barbara continues to adventure as Batgirl for several years, and she eventually earns the Dark Knight's respect and approval and accompanied him as well as Robin the Boy Wonder on several missions. And after a brief stint as a superhero, as they say in the book, Barbara decides to retire as Batgirl to pursue a career in politics, and then she became the youngest politician ever to hold a seat in the United States Congress and served for one full term. Following her foray into politics, Barbara partly came out of retirement and she donned the cape and cowl once again. Ta-da! Yes. Thoughts? Uh, Stella, what did you think of this issue or this story? (laughs) Yeah, so the first time I read this, I wasn't too enthused about the, the continuity changes and her biography changes. This next, you know, the rereading it for your show it didn't bother me as much i just have a a problem with almost forcibly creating tragic backstories for heroes Mm -hmm. where there may not necessarily need to be one and i feel like you know barbara had a good backstory to begin with she had a really close relationship with her father who happened to be jim gordon um and of course you know she does have james jr and her mother left her father but you know they didn't focus on that in her original origin and here we really get to know this new backstory and there's just tragedy abounds you know with her mother getting killed and then her father just going into this deep depression over it and he's dying so she's very much an orphan and gosh are we like flashing back to thrill killer welcome to the dead parent society (laughs) (laughs) Because here we are again, but, you know, again, out of love, her uncle, you know, adopts her. So we sort of do have that facsimile relationship. It's it's just, it's a different twist. I guess the family dynamics is, is what I'm not too happy with. But everything else more or less jives, you know, with her going to university and obviously height, um, focusing on her intelligence and her ability to be the best she can be at all these sports and dedicating her life to being 
a, a savior of Gotham to a certain extent. And then the other thing I don't like is sort of her being enamored of Batman. That's something that always rubbed me the wrong way when people try to ship Batgirl with Batman. Uh, because while she may be, you know, a slight derivative, obviously, of Batman, just like Supergirl is of Superman, I liked how she did it, you know, of her own accord. It wasn't based off of being Batman. I think she more, it, originally, she more put it on because, well, number one, it was a joke. But number two, it's because she's so respected and loved her father. And I think she was trying to travel down that path rather than, you know, looking at Batman. <laughs> so that that's just a that's a little sad because it says, you know, in there that there is a bit of a a bit of a crush on him. But overall, you know, I liked it better the second time I read it. But there's still some origin pieces that I think I like of the pre-crisis. All right. Before I get to Shag's thoughts on it, do you know, have you heard or researched why DC made these changes to her backstory? Why the change in her, her family origin? I haven't. And that's something that when, <laughs> when I get around to it, when I interview, Oh, do you know it? Cause I was going to say when I get to interview Barbara Kiesel, that's something that I certainly want to discuss with her. Yeah. Shag. Shag, are you I- raising your hand like Horshack? I am. I am. I know a little bit. Um, I, I don't know how much of this is full. Either way, what part of the reason they had to do this is because Frank Miller left them in a bad place. At That's the end what of I Batman was thinking. Year, it was based Batman Year One, and they even talked about that a little bit in Who's Who Update eighty seven, one of the letters pages. Who's Who Update eighty seven, by the way. There's a podcast for that. But anyway, Ooh, that's they, my favorite podcast. I've heard that. So um, anyway, they they talked a little bit about that. How it, in Frank Miller's Year One, you exactly what you said, Stella. James Junior. You know, Frank introduced James Jr., and then I guess everyone else is kind of looking around going, uh, Babs, anyone? What happened here? So I don't, I don't know whether there's editorial involvement or Frank just went off on his own and they didn't feel like they had the right to stop him. I don't know which. But, yes, they created this whole uncle-aunt situation because of the result of Batman Year One. That was pretty much what I was thinking of because I, I know that that was the big question that Frank Miller introduced, this notion that Gordon had a son but never – dealt with the concept of having having a daughter and the ages would have been a little bit screwy Mm -hmm. Um, now there are other elements of the story that's well hey forget that like shag what were your thoughts on the story well i was just going to address a couple of the nonsense things stella was just saying um as far as no i'm just kidding no you're right about the the crush thing there's one line in the whole book that indicates she has a crush on batman because the beginning part she doesn't talk about having a crush on him. She talks about wanting to either be his partner when she's very young, and then later on she has this fantastic line that I love. She says, he's smart. I'm going to be smarter, though, which I, I love that bit. I love how they show her, show her as strong. And, yeah, he is her inspiration in a lot of ways throughout this thing off and on. Sometimes she wants to be Supergirl. Sometimes she wants to be Batgirl, whatever. I mean, the fact is she is Batgirl. As you said, she's derivative. She has to be inspired by Batman to some degree in order for the story to make sense. But there's only the one hint of the flirting, which is when, when she's flirting with Robin. She says, Batman was always the one in my mind. Is he the reason I do this? I wish they could have struck that line from the comic because yeah. I agree with you. I don't like her crushing on Batman. The rest of it, though, I thought I wasn't going to like because after reading the Who's Who entry and then talking with you, Stella, um, the Who's Who update, it really did make it sound like Barbara – was crushing on Batman, and that's who she was, you know, and she went became Batgirl to hang out with him. And as you read the story, that's not the case. She was on the path to be a hero all along. It's just she intersected with Batman, which then inspired her to sort of become Batgirl to some extent. And, and I liked that method, again, because she was going to be better than him. She knew from the start she was going to be better. 
and there's there's a lot of other stuff in here I want to talk about too. But I, I'll, I'll turn it back over to you, Ryan. You let me you let me know when I can talk some more because I have more stuff to say. Thank you. Um, my overall thoughts, kind of my first impression, I was really really liking this story until page sixteen, <laughs> and that's the same page where Shag pointed out that that oh, one no. line about Babs crushing on Bruce. But it's not just that line. It's it's almost everything on this page. Where she becomes a snake? Oh, gosh. Because so that's in my notes. Here's my thinking. <laughs> this is an 18-page story. Mm. I would bet money that this was originally planned or plotted to be 20 or 22 pages. Because page 16 is a mess. Like, if you read the captions, they just don't flow together. It's like seven different ideas that are just kind of dumped onto this page. And I think Barbara Randall or Barbara Kiesel basically had to trim two or three pages and, and just dump it all into this one because we get a whole lot here. We get these, these weird ideas that she's, okay, she's had all these backgrounds and backstories and adventures with her fighting a doppelganger and turning into a snake. We get one little bit of her sitting with Robin She's, I flirted with the first Robin for a while, but he was so young, Batman was always the one on my mind. And then the, the little thing about her. And then it jumps up. There's only one face I can't remember. And we get this this idea of this Cormorant guy. There's, there's no logical sequence to how those thoughts progress. First of all, what does that mean? There's one face I can't remember. Why can't she? And, and she talks a little bit about this Cormorant guy. Like, he's... He's like this guy that she's obsessed with capturing. We have no idea who he is, and we I, don't I have get a, any of this backstory. I have a guess, and I'm going to turn it over to Stella for my guess, though. But Stella, tell me if I'm right here. The scenes where they do talk about the the doppelganger, the part where she's grabbing her head, the part where she turns to a snake, and the cormorant, were those all old stories written by Barbara Randall as um, the Detective Comics backups? They were not. Oh, see, that was my guess. I guessed that she had written those, and she was trying to sort of shoehorn it all into the last bit here. The Cormorant one wasn't. That was from I don't. I, I looked it up, and I can't remember it. But it was issue of Detective, Detective Comics, yeah, four ninety one and four ninety two. Right, and he was this basically an assassin hired to kill her, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And and so so that that whole story, that whole deal with Cormorant plays out in the Batgirl special that came out a few months after this origin. Like that, uh, was, that was basically the story, okay. was the payoff of that. But it's, it's just weirdly dumped in this. Like We don't, ha- we don't know where, what this is all about. We don't know who this guy is or why he's so important. We don't know that this story is going to continue elsewhere. I, I really think that this story was going to be another page or two. And like I think she was going to explore more of... Babs's relationship with Robin and Babs's relationship with Bruce and give that a little bit more consideration and it had to be chopped up. Hmm. Well, Stella, where, who, the stories with the snake and the doppelganger, where did all that happen? <laughs> Where's this doppelganger? Well, it's, it's whatever. It's the it's middle page, page 16. Page 16. It's, it's her oh, looking okay. at another. Oh, okay. Um, I'm, I'm not looking for issue numbers. I just mean kind of in general. Yeah, yeah, this... yeah. Um... I don't be, remember. It the, would either be there, Detective there was or a, Batman Family. Yeah, they're they're most they're mostly in uh, in Detective. Um, the the Comorant, <laughs> uh was an interesting story just because she, as she mentioned, 
she died kind of uh she set up this dummy um that was then shot at and it seemed like she got killed and even alfred and bruce wayne are in tears in the next issue of detective and like go on the search and everything and it 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 spars out because it introduces new character like this little girl who was kidnapped and, and all of this stuff. But it's almost like the first sort of taste of what would become the Joker because she does really suffer from like PTSD after this incident and it's like a bit bit of a struggle for her after that. The snake one, which were possibly one of the worst stories that I've read with her in it, um, <laughs> is, is her with uh, Lady Viper and... Um, yeah, it was so weird. Just the things that happened and, and Batgirl basically almost giving up. So these are like bad moments in her career where very out of character moments where she's about to give up and, and saying, you know, I can't I can't do anything. And you're thinking, what? Who are you? I've been reading you for all these years. This isn't the right one. As for the doppelganger one, I'm not sure about that one. There was a, a Barbara Gordon murderous storyline so i'm not sure if that's the uh what what it's referring to there but i am i am wondering why you know barbara randall slash kiesel chose those particular ones to focus on because yes there is that connection in the batgirl special but they're not the strongest so i I do wonder why she's she's taking those and not something that she built herself like velvet tiger i know i was so disappointed Yeah, because it would be a good opportunity for that. Well, like you, Ryan, this page is very perplexing. It really felt like it was a a race to the end to shove everything in. And I had some wrong assumptions of why all this stuff was on this page. But, yeah, it it does feel very forced. The first time I read this, I got to the – and I was like, okay, this is feeling very weird. And then that last – I was like, who the hell is Cormorant? And I had to go back and do research and figure out. I was like, oh, okay. You know, as Stella was saying, he – his story was sort of a proto the killing joke. He was the yeah. first villain who shot Barbara Gordon, who shot Batgirl and forced her to kind of suffer this trauma. And it's it's even more weird when you realize the next story after this is all about her dealing with that story and the yeah. fallout of that story. And then the next story after that was the killing joke. Mm-hmm. Like Ugh. the succession of these stories in her publication history is insane. They they were definitely on on a path to get rid of her at this point. So were there elements of this story that were quickly retconned out of existence almost as soon as this story introduced them? Well, we haven't seen Marcy ever again except in the Batgirl special. <clears throat> I think was that wrong? Was she mentioned? I was trying to think after that left my mouth those words. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. I think actually I did see her in the I'll Suicide Squad. give you a little hint. Marcy was it Hawk and Dove? moved to Washington, D.C. Oh, and Barbara yeah. came and visited her in the Hawk and Dove issues. Oh, you made me read, young lady. I'm so sorry. I feel like a <laughs> fake person. I feel a failure. <laughs> now, I got a question here, and, and I'm just going to totally ignore Ryan's question because it's like a nonsense question. But um, in, oh, on page three, when um, – she says she used to pretend to have a friend. Oh yeah. I was wondering. Now, speaking retconning to some extent, I did. I am using it as a bit of a segue, Ryan. Is that a reference to Supergirl? That Supergirl's no longer around? 
because Babs and Supergirl, I, I think, were friends. And Supergirl now no longer exists, and it's only been a year or two since that. And it just made me wonder if that was sort of a, a nod to her. Anyone else get that sense, or am I just nuts? Well, Supergirl is name-dropped a whole lot in this story. Yeah. True. But if you look at, where is it, on page five, it's her and her friend have all of these pictures of characters that it looks like they... I don't know if they're drawing these pictures, if they, these are like characters that they've invented, or if these are merchandised versions of the popular superheroes. But like, there is a picture of a Batgirl that has red hair and the costume, and the, the symbol is a little bit different. It's more like the new look Batman symbol. But And then there is a picture of a Supergirl who is noticeably has dark or black hair. Did Babs invent these characters? Like she's paying homage to this this superhero community by like making up her own like fanfic adventures of these characters, or well, it says Marcy they... created most of them. Okay, but I think yeah. So so yeah, I mean, I think these are Marcy's creations. Which is a little that always struck me as odd that the fact that you know Barbara Gordon basically created the idea of Supergirl before a Supergirl actually existed. But I gotta mention, it wasn't a big leap for someone to, you know, think of that. No, no, because okay. I mean, there's a Superman. Let's create, you know, the girl form exactly. of it. But it's yeah. still a little strange. Okay, here's here's another question then. And this relates to the timeline that runs throughout this the story. Is how old are they in this part of the story? Uh, they actually say she her dad dies when she's thirteen. So this has got to be a little less than thirteen years old, probably. Okay, so. By the end of this story, she's in her early twenties. I mean, they they do they actually they make a a good they they spend a lot of time explaining how smart she was and how she got out of high school. She started college when she was sixteen, but mm-hmm. she got her master's degree, which is a postgraduate program. So even if even if she was like going through an accelerated bachelor program, I mean, she we're still talking about a couple of years in college. She does become a congresswoman, which you're supposed to be 25 years old before you can be a member of the House of Representatives. They make another explanation of that because she's filling in for her father's seat. So, okay, but still, she's got to be 22 or 23 thereabouts. So by the end of this story, she's about 10 years older than where she is when she's hanging out with Marcy in the beginning, or or 10 years older than she was when her dad died. So this thing with Marcy might have actually been even younger you're, you're trying to reconcile the Superman ten year timeline, aren't you? I, I am. I'm trying to put this on the same like what what man of steel. <laughs> you're such a nerd. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm doing the same thing, so don't feel bad. <laughs> yes, you're right. Uh, this, I mean, if you do all that math, then yes, this would have had to occur like 15 minutes after Superman first appeared. Right. <laughs> it's kind of how that would have to work for the years to work out. And how many times after this story is it referenced that she was a congresswoman? I didn't know about it until I heard Stella talk about it on her show. And I'm trying to think. I mean, in my in where I am with Oracle now, it hasn't been mentioned. And she also had a PhD pre-crisis, and that was next in this new origin slash post-crisis. So that's and why, I don't think uh, it was brought back. That's why I was coming to this costume like that. I think this origin story tried to reconcile a lot of the pre-crisis Batgirl stories and put it on a timeline that sort of made more sense. And then almost immediately, most of this stuff is discarded. I, I think also they wanted to de-age her to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. To bring her down and make her younger. 
because she was older originally. And I, I don't know if that was because of Robin, you know, <laughs> to bring them closer to the age, who knows, but they did certainly cut her age down a little bit. I think there's some there's some funny bits in here, like when the the older lady at her school is just being horribly sexist by saying, like, you know, don't be so impatient, it'll ruin your complexion. <laughs> It'd be so horribly condescending. Stuff like that cracks me up. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I do like, too, is that they point out that Babs creates all her own gear. Uh-huh. So, this, so this, again, shows how independent she is, that she's not right. there as Batman's sidekick. She is her own hero. And I love that. I mean, the lenses, they talk about that, all the gear mm-hmm. she tested out before she went into action. I just love that kind of stuff. Oh, I do, too. That was really cool. I, I like that she went to you know, the police department and like sort of took her gear and her suit through a practice run. So, still, I have a question, because I haven't read the original origin of, ba- uh, of Babs in many, many years. In the story here, when she meets Batman for the first time after fighting Killer Moth, they make references to something clumsy happening, and it looks like something has spilled, but I have no idea what that is. <laughs> what is that? What, what was that about? Do you remember? Um, I think it was that goop. Like, she stuck her hand in the goop that, um, that Killer Moth shot off. Mm-hmm. Oh. That yeah, was but- on, the, uh, on the car. Yeah. But I haven't re read that which is it i actually have the original cop yeah because he shoots the yeah. um on page 14 do you see the goop gun yes so i think I it's it just that she sticks her hand in it and then her keep gets stuck in it uh i don't recall if that happens in the uh, in the detective comics that she first appears in okay. but it's all I, I think that was certainly even if it doesn't happen that was certainly what was going on in the silver age at that time because anything that she would do was just never good enough for Batman and Robin, and mm-hmm. she could just never fit into that boys' game. So I think that just is almost symbolic of her, like how how she's treated, and it's just in that moment, and he looks down on her. So I know why Shag noticed that. I, <laughs> I so I knew what happened. I saw that the killer moth sprayed it, like the weird goop or glue gun thing. Uh-huh. She kind of gets stuck in it, or she gets it in her cape, and Batman is sort of pulling her away. She's it's it's sticky. That is, that is it maybe intentionally, maybe not, but that is a sexually charged image. No. Yes, it is. Oh my gosh. Yes, it is. You're really going far there. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> because yeah, I'm I'm the one doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you've crossed the line, Ryan. I'm just saying. <laughs> I, I when I think you've gone too far, that's pretty bad. So, <laughs> I was just gonna say. I think the only thing missing to make this a classic. Bronze Age story is Batmite appearing and professing his love to Babs in the voice of, from the animated series. Just that—that's really the only thing missing here. Have you ever read the issue of Batgirl's costume cut-ups? No, <laughs> I'm not sure if it's. I'm thinking it's Detectives. No, it's not. Three sixty-three. It's. Um, it is perhaps one of the worst <laughs> issues for like any feminist ever. Um, but it's basically Batgirl on, you know, this case. And when she's encountering these guys, like, super bizarre things happen. Like, she gets a, a rip in her, uh, in, <laughs> in the legs, you know, in the tights. Mm-hmm. And one of the bad guys goes, you know, what a, what a pair of gams. Like, she's doing it, but then you find out that she's doing all of this stuff purposefully. So that the bad guys are distracted. But it's—I I recommend just for hilarity purposes to read uh, those costume cut-ups. Sounds like she's doing a Power Girl using uh, her feminine wiles to distract the bad guys. Maybe. Oh, it's so, three seventy-one, Detective three seventy-one. 
So you, we've talked a little about like the art and apparently the sexually charged scene that the art drew, artist drew. I never thought of that. Yeah, I'm not seeing it. Everybody, but we haven't talked. Everybody, all of the listeners are going to come to my defense. They're all going to see it as soon as I point it out. Yeah, Ange is totally writing Only a note already saying you're wrong. <laughs> Only the oh, that- dirty ones? Okay, so 99% of my listeners. <laughs> oh, gosh. That would be all of my folks. Sorry then. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, we haven't talked about the artist himself. Like, What do you guys think of Rick Leonardi's art in the book? You know, I think that he really – I like how he portrays Barbara Gordon outside of the mask, I think, um, because he – it's a difficult task of you've got your model – obviously of her end point and so you got to go backwards and do little girl teenager and up and and i like her design i like some of the the overlap of things that are going out like on page 11 where you see her at school and she's studying she's doing track she's gymnastics and then she's just walking with the book i like sort of those overlaps so i mean i'm besides the um, the sticky white stuff i'm satisfied <laughs> with <laughs> <laughs> with his uh, with his art and and I think there are just some some great moments like on page thirteen where you just see her standing there with that um with that awesome stance. Mm-hmm. I really like the art and when I think of Rick Leonardi, I think of you know Spider Man two thousand ninety nine and other Woo! other Marvel books. I really dig it. I didn't have any any complaints about the art in the story. I'm actually currently doing a reread of Spider-Man 2099 right now, nice. and uh, so I'm I'm all up in the Rick Leonardi right now. So this book was perfectly timed to read this. I, I was totally sold on page two, the the full page splash of Barbara as Batgirl in the rain, with the way he drawed her cowl at this point in history. Because you'll see her cowl points, the, the 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 bat points are smaller later as he's telling the the flashback. But at this point in Barbara's history, he makes them huge. They're yeah. enormous. And they're straight as an arrow. They just look totally badass. Like, it looks distinctly different from Batman's. And I can't tell you why. It just does. And I think it looks fantastic. The the cape draped on her and the rain obviously making everything soaking wet. And I I love Leonardi's style. And I think he did a great job. And Stella, I would echo everything you just said about Barbara's face throughout the whole book. And the way he brought her up from a little girl to a woman just looks fantastic. Yeah. And some people would even say that the past tense of draw is drew, not drawed. (laughs) <laughs> I like the way he drawed her cake. I'm glad I don't know nothing about art, but I know what I liked. <laughs> I'm glad Stella pointed it out because I would have just thought it was me being punchy. <laughs> this is why I do podcasts instead of typing things up. So I can just guy I do the talking good. Uh any last thoughts or comments about this story specifically? It's pretty good. Yeah. Out of all of the secret origins you've covered, I mean, you know, you, you've covered some good ones, you've covered some duds. I think this is a pretty good one. I do too. I the the last couple of pages threw me for a loop because I was like, "Hang on, we we missed something, or this got super condensed." Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I I really I liked this origin. I liked the story. I I loved the art. I thought Barbara had a great handle on the character. Short of Gail Simone, I think Barbara Barbara Randall slash Barbara Kiesel is the best Barbara Gordon writer. How here's a question for you. How um in those two pages that you're talking about that sort of gets muddy, you know, fifteen and sixteen, since you may not be as well versed in her backstory, was the Congress and her working for the humanities research department I mean, was that confusing? Was, did that go through too quickly? No, I actually I followed that along perfectly. I more than anything, I was surprised that they, they kept that in because I knew of that from the pre Christ. I was like 
because when I got to that, I was like, I don't, I don't remember that ever coming up after this story, like in, in any issues of, you know, Birds of Prey or anything that I had read about her after this. So I was, I, that seemed like something that would easily have been excised from her post-crisis continuity because mm-hmm. it, it makes her, it, it instantly makes her older, even though, like, again, I said that they kind of bent over backwards to explain that, oh, she wasn't quite 25. She kind of slipped under the, she kind of bent the rules a little bit or found a loophole in the rules. Um, but you do have to be a certain age to be a, a member of Congress. Right. And it also, it just, it smacks of being older, more mature, more adult, and it flies in the face of that girl. And mm-hmm. you want to keep her younger and fresher. So, the, no, the the inclusion of that didn't confuse me in anything. I was just thought, why didn't they cut that? Um, it was really page 16 that I felt like yeah. it was, like, the, the captions... It, it felt like a bad cut-and-paste job, I, I really think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, I guess I, I forgot about the mind-wiped. Uh, there's a moment where um, this guy wipes her mind and puts her memories on audio tape. And <laughs> so the, the way to get her memory back is – and she had known about Dick Grayson's identity at this point because they shared – um, in Batman family, what their you know secret identities were, and then she gets her tapes back, and Robin replays all of them for her. But he keeps that one tape out that she knew of his identity. So that must have been that mind wiped. But it's just interesting, yeah. The the story points that she chooses to tell in those moments, and some of them are good, and some of them are bad. I mean, I would have kept out the snake. And I, I guess it was just uh, – I recommend you read it just so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the Comoran, I guess, you know, she has to. And, um, yeah, it, you know, the, the HRD, that, that point of her life, um, there was a bit of a struggle there because she lost her congressional seat. And then she goes back to Gotham and feels worthless. And that, that was just one of the many times that she felt that going on later in her career and her father was the one to to really pick her up so it's hard for me to read this and not know uh, or knowing the backstory and wishing that they could put more in there but then i'm thinking on the flip side would people that aren't as well versed in Batgirl really care about that would that be too much so yeah it's interesting i i do also regret her if barbara kiesel had kept the hrd stuff out it would have been good because there were so many loose ends in that particular storyline that I was hoping Barbara Kiesel would actually tie up that she never did. So that's a bit of a disappointment. But uh, overall, you know, I think you get a good sense of who Barbara Gordon is. Again, the tragic backstory I'm a little disappointed about. But, you know, you see that that classic interaction, the first interaction between her and Batman. And you sort of get a taste of her relationship with Jim. Though I think, you know, later on you'll, you'll get a better idea of what that is. And, you know, taking out the crush business, taking out 16 altogether would work out <laughs> well. But, but you know, if someone were going in and reading this to get an idea of who Barbara Gordon is, I think for the most part this gives them a good idea of her character. So where did the character go from here? Are you asking me or is that rhetorical? Um. Can it be both? Um, I, I, I think we all know, but uh, uh, I do want to address it because I, I would feel remiss if I didn't. Stella, I've listened to your podcast, so I know mm-hmm. you could not love The Killing Joke more. 
Oh gosh! Yes. So yes. let's let's you know we we don't even the 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 events of that story are widely known, and they're going to be even more popular because they're making an animated movie about it for some reason. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Barbara after she is shot and paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think that that her the story of her life played out then? It. Uh, how do I say this? Um, only because of two angels in disguise by the names of John Ostrander and Kim Yale was Barbara's character saved. Um, because, you know, I think if those people had not existed and done what they did with her character, that she would have been left as is, you know, just a cripple, perhaps not even used at all. But they took her and they turned her into to something very awesome. And um, so the first time you see her is in Suicide Squad. And just little by little, you only you don't even know potentially who who she is. But she's under the guise of Oracle and she's helping Amanda Waller out. And then later on, Waller and her actually meet. She goes under the alias of uh, Amy Beddoes. And she helps out the Suicide Squad. And she's almost like second in command because Waller goes off on a mission. And she says, if I don't come back, then you're in charge. So that's – and she starts sort of dipping her fingers into other, uh, other, <laughs> other pots because, you know, she's – she works with Hawk and Dove. She worked with Firestorm, with Manhunter. So she's slowly, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, starting to build almost this network as Oracle and getting in touch with different heroes. And, of course, it's going to just be huge as as we get into the late 90s when she really starts to work with Batman because there is sort of a rift between them. And then she has the Birds of Prey and everything. So Oracle is, is a great history and to see where she goes and all the heroes that she interacts with. And uh, do you want me to stop there? Do I need to go <laughs> to Flashpoint and then what happens there? No, I stopped paying attention a couple minutes ago. So Okay. Oh, my well, I, goodness. I, I wanted to take issue with something Ryan said earlier. He said Barbara Randall probably knows this character best. You know, I said uh, short of Gail Simone. Okay. Well, I would say John Ostrander before – Barbara Randall, just my take on it. I mean, for me, when I when I fell in love, I guess you could say, with the Barbara Gordon character is when she was Oracle. That's when I really started paying attention to the character. And the way he developed her, and then even Chuck Dixon, the way he wrote her in the early days of Birds of Prey, mm-hmm. that's Barbara Gordon for me. So, to me, that that those are the writers I look to, would be Austin Durr and, and Dixon, and of course Gail Simone, as who I think is the best Barbara Gordon writers. Not that anyone asked me or anything. Again, not listen. I have these sort of dueling thoughts about it because, on the one hand, I I almost think the events of the Killing Joke were the best thing that could have happened to Batgirl at that time, because for about two decades, or, or about, Oracle was bigger than Batgirl could have been. I mean, she was a transcendent character. She fit a niche that. Nobody else in comics was fitting this this cyber hacker, cyber warrior, information merchant that was completely indispensable, not just to Batman, but to so many other characters. And just what she represented, what she represented um, for people with uh, for people with disabilities, it was she. Be, it was just that she was bigger than. Batgirl would have been after after that crisis. So, 
in a sense, I, I love what they did. I, I love that character, everything that Shag was saying. Like that was, that was a great time to fall in love with Batgirl. Now, having said all of that, when the new 52 came out and they announced that, nope, they were putting Barbara Gordon back in the Batgirl costume, they were undoing Oracle, I was completely fine with that too. Uh, and I, I, because I've mentioned uh, before on the show, like when I think of superheroes, I, I always sort of default to their most iconic status. When I think of Green Lantern, I think of Hal Jordan. When I think of The Flash, I think of Barry Allen, even though I've read better Wally West stories. When I think of Robin, I think of Dick Grayson, even though I've read better Tim Drake stories. When I think of Batgirl, it's Barbara Gordon and nobody else. Mm-hmm. And by the time we got to, you know, 2011, 2012, when the new 52 was kicking off, everything that that Oracle represented from a plot or a situational standpoint wasn't special anymore. The, the, the internet has been demystified. So all of the cool stuff that she could do as Oracle, a 10-year-old kid can do with a smartphone. Um, and, and it actually, she, be, she was used more of as a crutch, and it made some of the other heroes seem stupid that they had to depend on her. So I was fine with them with them making her Batgirl again. I think we missed out on what made Barbara special when she was in the chair. I think if you're going to have a Birds of Prey, then you need somebody in that chair, and you need mm-hmm. somebody behind the screen, um, which is one of many reasons the new 52 Birds of Prey was an ungodly, unreadable mess. <laughs> I don't think it was as bad. I was listening to your other show about it, and I was like, oh, I don't know. We're going to have to discuss that. Okay, the reason you liked it was because Batgirl was the only character that was treated like something other than an idiot. (laughs) If you're a Black Canary fan, oh, that was a terrible series. In the beginning, it wasn't as bad for her. It was only in the end, that final arc, I'd say. Okay, every... Save it for flowers and fish. Apparently, we'll have to. Okay, we will. So... I don't know. What do you What do you think? I mean, when when they when they took her out of the chair and they put her back in the Batgirl costume, what did you think? Yeah, it's funny because uh, somebody asked me this recently, and I think you know when it first happened, I had been asked a lot, but only recently have I really been able to formulate my thoughts because I realized how much of a travesty and how many people cried out when you know they took her from Oracle in the chair to being able to walk and Batgirl. And I think uh, you had to have her as being able to walk and Batgirl because if their whole idea was sort of restarting this universe, even though, you know, all the history was intact, I think you have to have Barbara Gordon be that person in the cowl because you're just assuming. I mean, if Clark Kent is starting over and Bruce Wayne, all these people then Barbara Gordon should be the one in there. And I do feel bad for Betty Kane fans out there. But there's always so much that Bat-Girl can do. And, <laughs> and, and Barbara Gordon just sort of trounces all that. So I think, you know, if, if they continue in this timeline and maybe something happens and she goes back in the chair so it sort of follows, you know, the, the circle or the cycle that had happened previously, I think it'll work out. But if you want to start over and you want to have a Batgirl, I think really the one that makes sense is Barbara Gordon. And since they said they weren't going to – I mean, Steph Brown hasn't existed uh, until Eternal. And then Cassandra Cain is about to exist again. So 
that was really our only option, and I think it, it made more sense for her as Batgirl than as Oracle, because if you put her as Oracle, there had to have been a lot more history going on, and I think that would have been more difficult. Right, hang on. I'm going to get Chag's thoughts on that, but I did want to interject. Um, I completely agree, and I thought that DC was greedy in that sense, because they made Barbara Batgirl again, but they tried to include her history as Oracle as if that had happened too, and yeah. I thought that made things overly complicated. I think the Batgirl of Burnside was a better clean start. That should have been the approach to the character from the get-go. Um, and you also you brought up Stephanie Brown. Honestly, I think she could fill in the new Oracle position because her name is Spoiler, or it was mm. Spoiler. And what you think of what Spoiler means in internet parlance today, she could be the, the, the cyber crime buster. So. Uh, Shag, your thoughts just kind of on the the more recent revelations of Oracle and Batgirl? Sure. No, you guys make some very interesting points, but you're both incredibly wrong. Um, (laughs) There's absolutely no reason to put Barbara back on her feet again because you guys talked about they're going to launch the new 52, right? Everything's starting over, and they need to have Barbara as Batgirl. Well, the problem was the new 52 was a messed up launch because Batman didn't start over. No. Well, because Everyone Batgirl. else did. And Batman's history was there. He was on his fourth Robin at the beginning of the New 52. So they're all interns. that hits. What's that? They're interns. They're on a nine-month intern program. I don't even know if nine months is long enough. But anyway, um, all right, I don't know if they these last nine months, I mean. So I feel like they, sh- I feel like they screwed up. I feel like Oracle you, – you say Oracle wasn't special anymore because a 10-year-old could do this on the internet. I disagree. It wasn't just about hacking systems anymore. It was about knowing what was going on in the whole universe. It was about Robin who's out in the field who doesn't have time to sit down with the smartphone and go to a wiki on what the Clue Master's up to. He just calls Barbara and, or Oracle and says, tell me what I need to know. Who do I need to punch? You know, or where do I need to go? How do I get into this building? Look up the floor plans, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so I think she still served a very real purpose in the universe, and I think taking her back out of the chair and putting her as ba- Barbara Gordon, and I think they were just going for sales. They thought they could sell more comics that way, and I've heard a lot of people say that the, you know, up until the uh, Burnside era, the Batgirl book wasn't all that great. They didn't really take advantage of what the material they had there, so I think that was a waste, and I don't – unfortunately, you said they could follow the cycle and put her back in the chair. There's no way in hell they can cripple Barbara Gordon again. You think about the outrage at that one cover where it showed the Joker threatening Barbara Gordon and how the internet cracked in half when everyone lost their mind. That's because the Joker was involved. I know, but I'm saying if they were to cripple her again, the backlash? Because everyone, I mean, there would be, everyone would be alight with screaming internet freak out going, you know, how dare they do that to her? She's a strong, independent woman. They're just taking her down. You can't have a strong, independent woman in comics nowadays and blah, blah. Like, oh. There would be no way they could put her back in the chair. I don't think they can do it. And I think that's why they're setting up other people to be Oracle. They've got the algorithm going. They've got her friend Frankie going. See, I do listen to what you say, Stella. Um, yeah. And you're right. Spoiler, actually, that's a clever thing, Ryan. You must have borrowed that from somebody else because that's a clever idea of making her Oracle just based on the name. But I think Stephanie Brown would have been a fine uh, Batgirl to start the new 52. So there, you're, you're both wrong. They're making a Killing Joke animated feature. Yeah, they are. I can't imagine they care that much about the Twitter backlash. <laughs> <laughs> that story's already been told, though. Okay. Uh, we're already running long, so any... Can I, uh, 
Oh, oh. Were you, no, no, no. I was actually going to ask if there were any other sort of big thoughts on, on the character of... Oh, I don't think I have any. She's smoking hot. Oh, here we go. There's a, that's your one. You only get one this episode. Wait till I start talking about Dr. Midnight. <laughs> <laughs> and his um, attractive female cohort. Oh, I was talking about him, but okay. Yeah, don't don't put Shag in a box. It's all every everything with legs is <laughs> he does not discriminate. Even when the legs don't work. Oh, I went there. Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. All right, Stella. Fifty Shades. We're, we're taking Shag. Fifty Shades. It's true. It's so. true. Nuclear. Nuclear. All right, Stella. Um, for anybody who's listening to this and for some reason has never read a good Batgirl or Barbara Gordon story, uh, recommended readings, where where should people start? <laughs> oh, I get to do multiple? Um, limit I... yourself to nine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. The first and foremost that you need to get is Batgirl Year One. And right now it's collected with Robin Year One, so, you know buy one you get one free but it is just an amazing story by chuck dixon and scott Beatty with beautiful gorgeous art by marcos martin mm. and it's just a swan song it is so it's, it's just a, a love song to the character and you just really can relate to her and, and that's what made me fall in love with the character so i recommend that and i um i also recommend the back row showcase if you you know if you're interested after year one to get in touch with her Silver Age stuff, which you gotta you know you gotta take it with the green salt since it is Silver Age, but that's you know the best of her interactions with with Batman and Robin. I'll give you two and I'll stop there. But I you know if I were to go on, I would say I'm sorry I lied. That um, beside I, I guess since it's Barbara Gordon we're talking about, I won't mention. Uh, the Brian Q. Miller, Stephanie Brown run, but there I did mention it. But Batgirl Burnside, I really love it. Um, I was not a fan of the darker storytelling that Gail Simone was doing in the beginning. So if you are more of the lighthearted Barbara Gordon, um, just with beautiful art and a great creative team, then the Batgirl Burnside trade is out now. All right, Shag, any recommended readings? I would add in those early trades, and I don't know how they're collected in what format, but the early trades of the Birds of Prey series by Chuck Dixon, because it, it builds nicely that Black Canary and Oracle are working together, yet they don't – Black Canary doesn't know Oracle's identity. And then by the end of this long story yep. arc, when they finally the come together – What's that? The hunt for Oracle. Yeah, and I, I, if I remember right, they're like on a dock or a pier, and Black yep. Canary's holding Barbara. I mean, I was like in tears by the end of that, but the tears of joy because yeah. they were finally together. It was this powerful moment. You also get these great moments with uh, with Dick Grayson. Was it issue eight? I think it is, or whatever. <gasps> yes. Yeah. So I mean, these early issues of Birds of Prey. I mean, everyone talks about Gail Simone's, but it seems that Chuck Dixon's has been forgotten, and that's not fair because he set this whole thing up for Birds of Prey. And there's some great, powerful stories in there. So I think you should check those out. Oh, there's that thing. Alan Moore wrote something too, right? Oh, just kidding. Give me a break. Um, I yeah, I, I think only Chuck Dixon's first arc was collected, but I want to say they're going back and re- either reprinting it, and they might actually be starting and reprinting more of those that hadn't been collected yet. Well, there were a bunch of miniseries first. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There were. There were. And those like are kind of hitting. Some of them are good. Some are. 
you know, yeah. cheese, cheesecakey. The Gary Frank stuff's really cheesecakey. Right. Um, the story's still decent though, because Chuck Dixon can't write a bad story; he doesn't know how. And then you get into then the ongoing series is when it really gets good. Right, and I reviewed a lot of those one shots on uh, the Flowers and Fishnets blog before it was a podcast. Um, and picking up from there, I would recommend especially the the Gail Simone run of Birds of Prey. I like that run better than the Chuck Dixon one. She does pick up and and borrow a lot of what uh, what Dixon had done before, um, but the level of humor, the level of characterization, I just think she she really tapped into those characters. And the one other thing, if uh, if you're a fan of digital comics on Comixology, or you, this would also be in the showcase, I think, but we didn't mention it by name. You've got to see Batgirl's first appearance. It's Detective Comics 359, because the title of that issue is The Million Dollar Debut of Batgirl. <laughs> and that's just one of the all-time great titles for a comic. You know what? I don't even know if we mentioned this for the people at home. I mean, she was Barbara Gordon was created as a response to her upcoming appearance on the TV show. She, right. Actually, for the longest time, I thought she started in the show um, because I had heard that she was creative. I thought her, her debut in the TV show was before her debut in the comics. Uh, and it turns out that, no, like they, her debut in the comics was like nine, ten months before the first episode. But it was definitely in response to the character being right. created for the TV show. Yeah, yeah. I think the TV producers requested that DC create the character so that they could put it in the show. Um, it's so. just interesting. It's usually TV characters spinning into comics, you know, doesn't usually work. Mm-hmm. And uh, it obviously stands the test of time with this one. And, and on that same train of thought, uh, Shag, I've mentioned this to you before, but I'm going to throw I don't, this out I don't there. typically listen to you, so that's, that's okay. That's why I'm throwing it out there again. I was so, so convinced that Felicity Smoke was going to end up paralyzed by the end of Arrow Season 3. Because they have done everything to make her Oracle in that show, except put her in a wheelchair. And I still think that is the natural trajectory for her character. Except for the fact that CW isn't going to deny their fans uh, her legs. You could still see the legs. You can wear a miniskirt if she's in a wheelchair. But, but CW doesn't damage their beautiful, beautiful people. <laughs> can you imagine what Andy Babacht would do from the Flash podcast if they paralyzed her? <laughs> I think he'd be. I think he'd be fine with her becoming Oracle. I think a lot of people see that connection. So yeah, it's a. It is a very logical projection for, uh, for the character. Now, just want to remind everyone: Felicity Smoke started as a Firestorm character. There you go. That was the one that you get. Well, this has been so much fun, Stella, and I'd hate to lose you. Would you mind sticking around a little bit longer and helping Shag and I cover Doctor Midnight? As long as you keep Shag at least ten feet away, I'll be okay. I'll give you a broom that you can like kind of poke at him to keep him that distance. Thank you. Okay, listeners, we're going to take another break, play a promo, but we'll be back with another secret origin in just a minute. Don't go away. Daddy, what did you do when Atlantis attacked? I donned my iron armor to fight with Namor, the Submariner. That was Iron Man. What did you do when Atlantis attacked? I gathered a group of heroes to fight against a serpent crime with my mighty shield held high. That's Captain America. Try again. I spun a web any size. Spider-Man. Uh, I punished the drug dealers. I have no idea. But are you just doing another podcast? Another podcast? Yes. Mark's Mess vs. Atlantis Attacks, a 15-part limited podcast series examining the Marvel annuals that have the banner heading of Atlantis Attacks. A story... (laughs) 
A story joining the Marvel heroes against the Serpent Crown. Find it at marksmesspodcast.blogspot.co.uk, on Twitter at marksmesspodcasts, and on iTunes by searching Mark's Mess. Where's my fiber? came back to hear more from us. I would have been against it. <laughs> well, whatever. Uh, my official guest for this next segment is the irredeemable Shag from Firestorm Fan and the Fire and Water Podcast. Welcome back, Shag. Thanks for having me, and, and I'm really excited to chat with the Secret Admirers. Uh, I gotta tell you, they, they've kind of lost out a bit here, because if I had been allowed to do my Batgirl recap, I, I wrote the entire thing in iambic pentameter. So I'm just saying it would have been pretty cool, but oh well. Do you even know what iambic pentameter is? I have Wikipedia. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. I was going to say that's that's our collective loss that we all missed out on that experience. <laughs> uh, and joining us for a little bit longer, like she's addicted to danger or something, is Stella from Batgirl to Oracle, a Barbara Gordon podcast. <laughs> Thank you yeah. for not leaving Shag and I alone together. That uh, that should really reduce some of the property damage by the end of this conversation. Yeah, someone's got to be the referee in this <laughs> little sausage fest for sure. Oh, oh. <sighs> love me some sausage. Okay. Oh. <laughs> oh no! No! What? I meant that completely literally. I don't know if you were taking something in a weird direction. Back on topic, as if that was humanly possible with us. Remember at the top of the show where he said he was excited to finally be talking to a girl? I think we're starting to see the signs of that coming through. I guess. Shag, I know that you're a Daredevil fan. Would you say that you're a fan of all blind superheroes, or is it just, you know, these two? Um, if you can think of a third one, I'll let you know. But I am definitely a fan of Dr. Uh, Dr. Midnight and Daredevil both. I think my fandom of Daredevil came first, though. Although I never put the correlation together of them both being blind till that you just said it. I've always liked Dr. Midnight, uh, mostly from an aesthetic level. I, I know he's he's sometimes compared to Batman in that he you know in the in the Justice Society he kind of took on that that form he was the the dark urban vigilante that struck at night the comparison of bats and owls um, but he also he reminded me of Daredevil because he was blind he also reminded me of Robin because of the sort of red breasted you know torso and he, he seemed like what Robin's costume would look like as an adult which I think Alex Ross played on when he designed the adult Robin in. Uh, in Kingdom Come, um, but he also he kind of reminds me of Falcon just because he's got a pet owl 
And that's something that I like. I like characters with pets. <laughs> Stella, had you ever heard of this character before we looped you into this episode? Um, isn't there a Dr. Midnight on the JSA? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I feel like in that sense, I had known of his existence and in searching for this issue, I knew that he was paired with Batgirl. But as for his origin, I had no idea. Well, good. Then we get to educate you on this one. I'm so thankful. <laughs> uh, Shag, how did you first discover the character? Probably in the um, – well, I would have seen him in Crisis on Infinite Earths, which was the first DC comics I really dug into besides Firestorm. But I think I really started paying attention to him in All-Star Squadron and noticed the character there. thought he was pretty cool. Like you said, he's got a great look, and the, the blind angle was pretty cool. I, and you know the origin – I didn't even really know the origin until I read the Secret Origins comic, and then I promptly forgot it until I reread it for this show. It, his origin has never really been that important. It was just he's the blind doctor. That's all you ever really needed to know. That was the elevator pitch. You know, he's, he's the blind Batman doctor kind of guy. But where I fell in love with the character was during the post-crisis, short-lived J- JSA ongoing series. It was actually just a Society of America. It was Len Shizuski. I'm saying his name wrong. And Mike Paraback. Paraback, yeah. I was gonna yeah, it lasted for 10 issues. And the cover of issue, I think it's number six, maybe. It's got a full on picture of Dr. Midnight and he's taking him almost the whole cover and it's Mike Paravac's awesome sort of cartoony animated badass style and I fell in love and I was like that's it and believe it or not I decided at that moment someday I wanted to cosplay Dr. Midnight <laughs> I've never cosplayed anything other than a balding middle aged guy in a comic book t-shirt um, but if I were to ever cosplay it would be Dr. Midnight and it would be that sort of Paravac take on the costume it just looks totally badass so from that moment on, I was just hooked. Love the character. And then, uh, well, you go ahead. We'll talk about the history of the character, and I think I'll touch on some more points. I was just going to say, I, I don't think I can die a, a satisfied man until I see you cosplaying this character now. <laughs> I've talked with a costumer before about making it happen, and uh, it may happen someday, but uh, not anytime soon. <laughs> to the disfortune of everyone. Looking at the character's publication history, Dr. Midnight, the heroic alter ego of Dr. Charles McNighter, debuted in All-American Comics issue 25, which was cover dated April 1941, but would have actually hit newsstands in February, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. His first story in All-American was written by Charles Reisenstein and drawn by Stan Ashmeyer, who sometimes worked under the name Stan Ash or Stan Josephs. And Ashmeyer was the artist who first drew Johnny Thunder and his Thunderbolt, so I guess you could say he was making amends when he created Dr. Midnight. <laughs> After his initial appearance in All-American 25, Dr. Midnight continued to appear in every issue of the series until issue 102 in 1948 when it became a Western magazine. However, as Roy Thomas notes in his text piece in the letters column of this issue, Midnight never once received a cover spot to himself in all of his 77 appearances in All-American Comics, as that luxury typically went to the headliner, Green Lantern. Interestingly, it was the Green Lantern that Dr. Midnight replaced on the Justice Society of America in All-Star Comics issue 8, less than a year after the Doctor's first appearance. From there, he would also go on to appear in every issue of All-Star Comics until that book, too, was rebranded after issue 57. After that, Dr. Midnight dropped out of publication like so many heroes of the Golden Age, only resurfacing in the 1960s as a member of the Justice Society of Earth 2 during the annual team-ups in the pages of Justice League of America and Flash. 
1976, DC resurrected All-Star Comics, and Dr. Midnight returned with the rest of the Earth 2 members. He occasionally popped up in Adventure Comics, Wonder Woman, and DC Comics Presents. In the 80s, he appeared in pretty much whatever Roy Thomas was writing, including All-Star Squadron, <laughs> Infinity Incorporated, and the four-part miniseries America vs. the Justice Society. After Crisis on Infinite Earths, Charles McKnighter was replaced by a younger, blacker, femaler version named Beth Chappell. In 1995, McKnighter was aged to death during the Zero Hour event. A few years later, a new white male Dr. Midnight premiered in a three-issue limited series by Matt Wagner and John Snyder. This Dr. Midnight, Peter Cross, joined the revived JSA in 1999, where he started hooking up with Black Canary. I just felt like I had to share that. Uh, Shag, any other notes on Dr. Midnight's publication history? Well, the scary thing is it, it seems like you're reading my notes because uh, <laughs> literally almost line for line. The only thing you really skipped was uh, after the 70s revival and he started heroing less and became, got more interested in medicine again. And that's where he met Beth Chappell and sort of mentored her. So when he disappeared during the crisis where he went to limbo with the JSA for about, what, I don't know, like 10 years or so, um, that's when she took on the role. And then she bought it. Uh, in an issue of Eclipso, where a bunch of know-nothing heroes went down to fight Eclipso on some island, and he slaughtered all of them. They were basically just fodder when they wanted to clean out the the, the back catalog of characters. Then um, it's worth mentioning, too, he had several cameos on cartoons, but he's never played a key role. I mean, that's sort of the theme for Dr. Midnight, is that other than those all-American comics, he has never really been a headliner. Um, even then he was, like you said, he was never on the cover, but he's never been on his own. He's always been a team member. He's never had a chance to really stand on his own other than a couple of occasions where like in the back of a DC comics presents issue, they did a, whatever happened to Dr. Midnight. That was a solo story, like eight pages. They had, uh, Jeff and during the Jeff Johns era of JSA, they would do flashback issues every so often or mini series and each one would spotlight a character. So he got a couple of one shot stories here and there, but not much of anything. Uh, the only time his name's ever been on the front of a comic, meaning a comic called Dr. Midnight was that three-issue miniseries when they introduced Peter Peter Cross. So uh, he's he's always been a, uh, a a team player. But you know what is that? Bridesmaid never a bride. I guess mm-hmm. you could say. I kind of feel just because of his his visual gimmick, like forgetting the fact that he's a doctor, forgetting the fact that he's blind. If you just take like the kind of adventures that you would put him in in like fighting crime in an urban setting. I kind of figure like anybody who pitched a Dr. Midnight story, editorial would come back with, why don't we make that a Batman story and sell a lot more copies? (laughs) (laughs) I suppose so. I suppose they would always have to have a medical slant in order to make it his. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, they could have done a few more miniseries, though. Like that that three-issue Pieter Cross miniseries is really good. Yeah, I I definitely – I want to talk about that a little bit later. Okay. So, Shag, are you good to do the, uh, the synopsis? Yes, okay, uh, I do have to apologize. It's not going to be as brief as Stella's Batgirl one because this is based on a Golden Age comic. You're so really a lot happens. Yeah, you're a lot. Happens. What happened at Batgirl? I just summarized it. <laughs> Maybe finally, I'll a lot, give you that. A lot happened in the Batgirl story. Stella just didn't think the listeners needed to hear it. So <laughs> you both. Let's just get this going. All right. Okay. Let's start off by the cover, the, by the credits. Writer Roy Thomas, penciler Michael uh, Mike Clark, inker Jerry Aserno, letter uh, Helen Vesic, colorist Carl Gafford, and co-editor Greg Wiseman. So clearly, uh, Roy Thomas fired the previous co-editor because he didn't like what he did. So, and then you mentioned earlier the credits. They, they do credit the folks who created uh, Doctor Midnight in All American Comics by saying it was adapted by that story. And by adapted, that means they just took the exact same script 
changed a couple of the words, kept the panel layout pretty similar because there's not that much difference from the original in this. But let's go through this. Start off with a great splash page, very Batman-like. On a rooftop, Dr. Midnight is lit from beneath by the street, and a lot of brooding caption boxes. And then you get into the background. You get into the history. Our story opens in Dr. Charles McNiner's office. Here we see he's working with his nurse, Myra Mason, who's, by the way, hot. And they're working on a new antiviral serum that could potentially save thousands of lives. And the narration throughout the story is, is, is the narrator, I should say, is Dr. McNiner himself. He's letting us know that Myra loves him but it's a love that's doomed from the start, according to him. Unexpectedly, a policeman arrives urgently requesting the assistance of the doctor. There's been a terrible accident, and the man is dying. So McNiter drops everything and leaves with the policeman. On the drive to the victim's apartment, the cop explains that this was no accident. The victim is a key witness against Killer Maroney, the racketeering king. And the victim was shot in the back by one of Maroney's mobsters. Dr. McNider arrives. He demonstrates how incredibly physical uh, his physique as he runs up the five flights of stairs to help the patients. It really doesn't serve any purpose other than setting up later on that he's awesome in a fight. McNider operates right there in the apartment and saves the patient. Now, during recovery, the patient and his wife are talking to uh, Dr. McNider about how dangerous Maroney is. Meanwhile, one of Maroney's gangsters named Mike has snuck up on a fire escape on the same apartment. He brutally murders a cop right there on the fire escape and then throws a live grenade into the room with the patient, the wife, the police officer, and Dr. McNiter. The resulting explosion kills everybody in the room except for McNiter. And our good doctor did survive, but there's shards of glass damaging his eyes, and he'll never see again. Such a nasty image. Anyway, uh, Myra comes by to visit McNiter in the hospital at, during, when he's in recovery. You see the tears in her eyes at the state of McNiter. And then he, uh, he refuses to feel self-pity, though. Instead, he commits himself to moving forward. He wants to continue his medical research, and he wants to try his hand at writing exposés for the newspaper that might help bring Maroney and his kind to justice. Myra explains that she's a dynamite typist, and she agrees to help him. Now, by the way, I, I should mention the story breaks very nicely into three different parts. I've just covered part one. Now I'm going to get into part two, and then we'll do part three in a minute. That, that was probably obvious, though, if you can count. But anyway, I probably explaining it to Ryan was probably helpful. Anyway, why don't you just do part three and then part two? Well, again, I'm, I'm trying to teach Ryan how to count. He's he may have okay. to take off his shoes to get there. But anyway, okay. So in part two, it's been a few months, and McNiter has been writing these sensationalistic articles for the newspaper, hammering away at the gangsters like Maroney, and uh, these articles are making Maroney furious. Then we find out one of Maroney's protection clients, meaning someone who uh, his goons are basically extorting money from, has been squealing to the coppers, and Maroney wants him taken care of. So then we switch back to the good doctor. We see him working out, keeping his body in peak shape while he's dictating another newspaper article to Myra. Then McNiter mentions to Myra that after sundown, he feels an inexplicable craving for action and physical exertion. So this is either him slowly realizing he's got these Dr. Midnight-type powers or it's a really, really, really bad come on uh, to try and get Myra to sleep with him. I'm not really sure which. I guess we'll find out as we go. Later on, McNiter sits alone in his study. And he's contemplating how to bring the gangsters to justice. And there's a terrible thunderstorm outside. And uh, shockingly, an owl comes crashing through the window. Now, if you're thinking Batman here, we'll come back to that in a bit. So McNiter realizes that he can see the owl clearly but only in the dark. But he's blind. How can he see? What's going on? He turns on the light bulb, and once the light bulb comes on, he's blinded again. But turning it back off, he can see perfectly clearly in the dark. So he makes an analogy about an owl, basically says the iris of his eye cannot close off the light 
to the proper degree so that he's blinded by the daylight. Interesting. So he fixes, uh, he fixes up the injured owl, nicknames him Hootie, and sets about creating some infrared glasses to help him in his newfound sight at night. Meanwhile, Maroney's boys, including this guy named Mike, who blinded McKnighter, are roughing up a grocery store owner. Uh, this is the previously mentioned protection client. And the altercation ends with Maroney's boys shooting the abused client. Next morning, McKnighter hears about the grocery store owner who's been shot, and he's seriously injured, and he uttered the words protection and Maroney. All of this apparently made it into the newspaper, by the way. So McKnighter realizes that if this grocery store owner survives the surgery, then they can arrest Maroney. This would be a huge weight off his back. So he, it's very important that this grocery store owner survives. So McKnighter decides he's got to take action. He perfects his infrared glasses, which allows him to see during the daytime with his special vision. He develops these blackout bombs, and then he dons a collection of different garments from Halloween costumes and such to complete the costume of Dr. Midnight. That evening, the superhero Doctor and his companion Hootie leave to make their first house call. As we move into part three, Maroney realizes that if this grocery store owner survives, he's busted. He's going to go to jail. So he sends his boys out to cut the electricity and the lighting from the hospital. Therefore, they won't be able to operate on this guy, and he'll die. McKnighter arrives at the hospital once the power has been cut by Maroney's gang. Dr. Midnight takes over the, as the lead in the surgery since he can see perfectly well in the dark. He manages to save the grocery store owner. Afterwards, Dr. Midnight pays a visit to Maroney's place. Um, Midnight wrecks the fuse box, throwing Maroney's house into darkness. Then Dr. Midnight trashes the goons and takes down Maroney. Now, Maroney's guy, Mike, the one who caused McKnighter's blindness, falls out the window. Dr. McKnighter tries to rescue him while he's dangling from the rooftop, but then Mike falls maybe to his death. We're not really sure. But then uh, Dr. McKnight finds enough evidence to put Maroney away. And the issue closes with McKnighter and Myra talking about this new mystery man in the local newspaper, Dr. Midnight. Myra has no idea that it's the man she loves. There you go. All right. Thank you very much. Did you able to stay awake during all that? I went to the bathroom, so I, I'm Perfect. just assuming that this sounded coherent. It was really long. <laughs> Stella, thoughts on this story? <laughs> you know, it's funny because um, as I was reading it, that owl breaking through the window certainly did strike me as very Batman-esque. So I'm looking forward to see what um, Shag comes up with that. You know, this was really – I thought this was interesting just because I had really no – information on this character or experience with him at all um i felt like a little some doctor strange esque with that you know the his sort of sidekick there his woman um i wanted this almost to turn into an a romance comic but it didn't Mm. sadly um you'll have to I'll, i'll leave the question out there do these two ever get together maybe someone can tell me that but no overall i thought it was that's a that's a very important question actually oh okay i i i'm I'm interested to hear what the answer is. But no, I thought, you know, if you take away the idea of Batman, I think that was the issue, unfortunately. I I feel like if I had read this and had no knowledge of Batman, that maybe I would have enjoyed it a little bit more. But overall, I thought it was really exciting. I like that he was dealing with street-level gangs because I think some heroes are better suited to that rather than, you know, super-powered. And I like that we had this thread of – it was Moroni, right? Yeah, Yeah. Uh, that thread throughout, though, different things were sort of popping up, different spot fires. And, um, you know, having this this blind guy, which, you know, similar to Daredevil, but, you know, that that he's a doctor and that he tries to even though he's blind, he tries to go about it in other ways and is dictating these stories and just 
stays true to his beliefs, which which I thought he had just a strong character. And then, yes, the surgical scene with uh, that other doctor who just seemed like a complete jerk, how he talked <laughs> about it. He's like, yeah, doing good's okay, too. But so is, you know, the fame and everything. But no, overall... Um, I I, w- I really enjoyed this character, and I was wondering if he if he stayed with this sort of street. So now I guess I'm more interested in what happens to him. But does he stick with sort of street level um, guys that he fights against, or does he ever get a rogues gallery? Uh, he does mostly stick with street level folks. Okay. He he, he he fought a couple of costume folks as time went on. Certainly uh-huh. as more superhero, but for the most part, it, as, as I understand it, at least it was more street level. Yeah, it was early. It was gangsters. He was always kind of fighting the, uh, a lot of the, the early adventures, as I understand it, were pretty generic, very similar to this type of story. Um, I think his the only time he fought like bigger, sort of more worldly villains was when he was teamed up with the Justice Society. Interesting point about the Batman thing, and this just occurred to me. And and, and you know what, we've got a lot of secret admirers out there that know a lot more about this than us, and especially more than Ryan. But anyway. Um, the comparison to Batman is a good one. I mean, he's very much a Batman-type character, even back in 1941 when he was created. And here's, a, here's some speculation. And, and I don't know the ins and outs of all this, but back in the old days, DC Comics wasn't as unified as it looks. There were different publishing houses that were contributing characters. Like All-Star Comics actually had characters from two different publishing groups, All-American Publications and National Periodicals, if I've got that right, I think. And the National Periodicals contributed Batman and Superman, those types of characters, whereas All-American contributed characters such as um, Mr. Terrific and Dr. Midnight, The Flash, Green Lantern. So a lot of the what we think of as the JSA characters, once you remove the, the big three, Wonder Woman, Superman, and all them, well, I guess Wonder Woman came from All-American as well. I'm sorry. So it could be that National Periodicals had Batman and All-American decided they needed a competing character, so they created Dr. Midnight. That may just be the case. And I put that to the secret admirers. Let us know what you guys know about this. I'm sure Roy Thomas has written about this in Alter Ego or Back Issue Magazine or something. Looking specifically at this moment when the owl flies through the window, um, it's a dramatic moment. It's crashing through. It's showing. It's throwing glass all over the place. It's very striking, and it reminds you, uh, of course, of the Batman Year One image. But I'm trying to remember, and I forgot to go back and look at this because the Roy Thomas. Well, did you look at uh, Roy Thomas's secret origin of Batman from issue six? Oh, that was I didn't look at that. That was what I wanted to look at because I don't think I don't think the bat like the bat's appearance was as dramatic in that. I really think it was Frank Miller who made that bat like crashing through the window, yes. like this like groundbreaking epiphany, like that was like symbolic. Well, I what, think, I, what I went back and looked at was Detective Comics. The, the first time Batman's origin story was told, and I think issue 33, mm-hmm. and then Batman – I might be getting my numbers mixed up. But either way, there was two Golden Age retellings of Batman's origin very early on, and I looked those up. And in both cases, the bat flew in the window, but the window was open. Right, and I'm pretty sure that's how Roy did it in uh, Secret Origins issue 6. So this is kind of the first time where he's employing this dramatic owl crashing yes. through the window. So in, in, the, in the All-American comic from 1941, the owl crashes through the window as well. So Frank Miller, whether it being consciously or just coincidentally, used a Dr. Midnight move in Batman Year One when the owl crashed through the window. Dr. Midnight did it first. Represent. Yeah. 
and Frank Miller's career has been steadily downhill ever since then. I am, and it it is too bad though, just because I don't think anyone will ever realize that they'll always see this and think of Batman and not the reverse, just because Batman's so well known. So how are you going to spread the word, Jack? Um, I'm going to start by streaking um, at public appearances and write it on my chest. Just you know, Hootie did it first, and just <laughs> okay. run right right through. That's a whole tumbler. Yeah, that's yeah, a whole tumbler. So. Hootie Hootie did it first. Yep. Um, going back to Stella's question about the the nature of the relationship between Charles McKnighter and Mira or Myra created a very interesting issue. Uh, they never got together actually in the old all American comics. However, that that's been rectified in in okay. retroactive stories. However, here's the interesting thing: they never got together back then. And there's this line in the story where he in in this issue right here in Secret Origins number twenty, where he says that um, it was a love doomed from the start, but I could never bring myself to tell her. Apparently, there was a few years after this story was published in issue twenty of Secret Origins, where a number of fans speculated that Doctor Midnight was actually gay. I totally Whoa. thought that. That was how yeah. I read this story. As I was reading this the whole time, I was like, is Roy recasting Charles McNighter as a homosexual character from this era? Because it's really sounding like he's he has this strange sort of detachment from Myra where he's turning away her advances without any obvious reason to other than not being into her. Right. He does. It doesn't. Well, he doesn't get to explain it in here because it's not in the original story. And Roy was, as with several of the other Golden, or, or Golden Age origins, he was very slavish to the original origin here. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But at no point did they address it there either. But in interviews afterwards, Roy did say that it was really what he was referring to was the, the dual secret life thing. So that's what, he, that's what he was thinking when that line went in the book. But there was no opportunity to really show that in the story since it wasn't in the original. But since then, during like the Jeff Johns era of JSA, they've actually done flashback stories where McNighter shows his true feelings for Myra, and uh, there's been other ones where he shows that he loves her. So, I, Yeah, I wondered, since it said doomed, I would wondered if she was going to die in the issue. I never got a sense of him being gay, but I, I thought that maybe it was doomed because <laughs> she was not going to end up uh, alive at the end of this issue. So I was just sort of waiting for it to happen. I don't know where she ended up. Um, I, I suppose she may have died, but I didn't read anything about that. I imagine she just more kind of disappeared because without him having his own lead feature, him just being a supporting character in books, there's, there wasn't any place to put her. But she would have been, you know, she would have been, a, she would have been good in some other stories if they continued with her. But I'm gonna say it's both. She died and he was gay. <laughs> wow. Okay. It was double doomed. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of the differences between the original story uh, and this one. A couple different things. I mean, for the most part, it is very much, and I don't, maybe you guys don't agree, but it seems to me that it's very much repeating what was already printed. Sometimes the text is the same. He changed some words here and there. There's like a sexist comment in here uh, where he sends her in the original telling where Dr. McNighter sent her away so he could put together the Dr. Midnight costume. And he says, you run along like a good girl and go shopping or something. Yeah, Roy took that out. So, as he should have. I feel like he was a little bit looser in some areas. He he allowed himself to embellish some things. Obviously, when you're taking an eight-page story, converting it to a 20-page story, I feel like there were times where he, he puffed it up a little bit, and those are times that were, that were good, when he kind of loosened up on his, his usual strictness. Um, but go ahead. Was the, was, the, was the original only eight pages? I thought it was a... 
a, a full on. I'm trying to bring it up right now. Oh, well, Green Lantern was in there. It was just a backup. I, I really like that yeah, one bubble so. from the editors that said, you know, like a scientific explanation of how it was working, and it, it, they talk about how owl eyes, you know, how they contract and everything. Do you know yeah. what bubble mm-hmm. I'm talking about? I thought mm-hmm. that's that's so funny. <laughs> well, I guess they had to come up with some excuse for it. So, Shag, what so, were some of the changes that you noticed? Well, here's an interesting one where they were slavish, but then they changed their mind. In the artwork, there, there's a scene where Maroney is talking about, he's saying, okay, you've got to go kill this grocery store owner, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to kill the grocery store owner uh, by cutting the electricity. And in the original comic, in the original story, Dr. Midnight's sitting outside the window listening to this conversation, okay? And then he goes to the hospital. In this version... Maroney's doing the same thing. He's saying you got to go cut the electricity. And the next panel shows Dr. Midnight sitting outside a window, just like in the original telling, except this time he's sitting outside the window of the hospital. So it's almost like the artist was redrawing what was in the original comic, and Roy changed his mind about this panel once he got the pages. Rather than saying he was listening to Maroney, he had him go to the hospital. So it just it kind of demonstrates how slavish some aspects were, and then they changed their mind at the last second. And I would say there's another kind of more significant moment where Roy tries to deviate from what originally was presented in the story and it actually creates this little thing that doesn't make sense in the middle. Talk about it. Mike falling out the window? <clears throat> no, I'm not, not going to that part, but it's, it's around that same scene. How does Dr. Midnight plunge Maroney's apartment or his mansion into darkness in this story? He rips a fuse box off the wall. Okay. How did he do it in the original story? He uses one of his gas little blackout bombs. Mm. He throws his little blackout bomb. It puts oh. it puts Mike and Maroney into darkness, and he like slams their heads together and takes them out. That's right. Now, if you change that, if you take that element, why did we get the invention of the knockout or the blackout bombs in this story? Yeah. Good point. It basically he creates this this signature bit of technology. But he doesn't use it. It would be like telling Batman's origin, having a panel dedicated to Batman creating the Batarang and then never throwing it in the story. (laughs) Yeah, that is really strange. I didn't even pick up on that. Good catch. And I wouldn't mind it. I like the fact that he's just ripping the fuses out because he puts the whole house into darkness. But then go back, you know, five pages earlier and scrap that panel where you were explaining the the blackout bomb. Right, right. (laughs) Okay. Well, in that same scene, he does knock Mike out, and Mike goes flying out the window. And this is the guy who blinded him. Mm-hmm. He goes flying out the window and possibly breaks his neck and dies. We don't know. But that's not in the original either. So it just seemed like you know, I, maybe that was just to show that you know, if you're really a bad guy, you have to get your comeuppance. I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that they thankfully took out in the original, as Dr. Midnight is carrying the crooks away, he's actually singing a song. <laughs> it's, a, it's off to jail we go, boys. It's off to jail we go. <laughs> I just... So glad they cut that. <laughs> Mike should have actually gone out the window like 10 pages earlier. Because if you look at page 5, where like, okay, set the scene. Mike is on a rickety fire escape, like on yes. the sixth floor. Yes. Throws a grenade through the window. We see the explosion just upends everything. Throws bodies into the walls. The bed goes flying. Like, okay, that explosion should have blown out the wall and Mike should have gone over the fire escape and died. See, they don't build them like they used to, though. Okay. So that wall was stood at. And Mike was needed for later in the story because he was in the original as well. So mm-hmm. that was important. So. The, the only other thing worth mentioning really is, an, is a change. In, and this one is really, really – I, I found this on the internet. I didn't pick this up. Um, in the story, Roy 
tells that the grocery store is called Schultz. Mm-hmm. Okay. In the original story, he's called Schlitz. Minor differences. But it matters apparently because Schultz Grocery is also the name of the grocery outlet that Ma Hunkel inherited in All-American Comics number 20, which would be five issues before he first appeared, Ma Hunkel being the secret identity of the original Red Tornado. Mm-hmm. So basically Roy was trying to tie this grocery store that Ma Hunkel would, would get – with this story and just kind of connect the two. But the problem is the timing doesn't work because she actually had the grocery store before this story. And so there's internet people who talk about how it doesn't work and all that stuff. But it's like, wow, Roy was really trying to thread everything together there. This wasn't the first or last time he did things like that. Right. But all in all, I mean, I think it's a, it's an interesting origin story. I I think the character is great. And now that I'm thinking about this national periodicals versus all American comics, it sort of, makes a lot more sense that maybe he is their version of Batman. Um, it sort of excuses it more in my mind. And I think he's a, he's a totally badass character. And I wish he'd had more opportunities to star as Solo so I could have seen more stories and see if I do love him as much as I think I do. And I think he, unlike Batman, who now is sort of weighed down by the gravity of like how he's presented in the movies as he's got to be so stern. He's got to be, there, there's no room for joy or love in Batman stories anymore, it seems like. But Dr. Midnight feels like he could like tread that line. And I think you could, Dr. Midnight could be the fun-loving Batman that we miss. Like, <laughs> and, and so, again, playing up with the, the Daredevil comparison, too. Or Robin. You know, Dr. Midnight could be the, the urban vigilante of the night who also has a smile every once in a while. Yeah, so. that, that could work. And, and now the Peter Cross version was very much more like a Batman. He was – I mean, he, he flirted with the ladies and stuff and had some fun there. But he was darker. You know, he didn't have the green cape. He had a black and things like that. But um, it was still a cool character. It was nice to see a ver- – I mean, there wasn't all that much difference between Peter Cross and Charles McKnighter. I mean, they were blind doctors. They both were used as utility characters and saved lives all the time. Other than knocking boots with Black Canary, I don't know that there was a lot of differences between the two. Uh. What did you two think of the art in the story? We'll go with Stella. What did you think of the art? Uh, this, I felt like I was reading a Golden Age comic. I'm not sure why, but just from that second page, you know, looking at... And maybe it's because my comic, uh, it seems like it's faded, you know. This was from... Uh, before my time. No, it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But no, it, it did have that, that golden age feel to it. And it's funny because when I read the, the original appearance of him, I thought, wow, it, it seems like not a lot has changed besides the, the speech and mannerisms. Um, but I liked it. I liked, I don't know if that this was purposeful, you know, to really keep to that sort of style. Um, but I, I enjoyed it. I think that it probably was, or at least if it wasn't an intentional attempt to recapture that Golden Age flavor, I think Roy Thomas probably assigned Mike Clark because that was his natural style. Mm-hmm. Roy Roy used artists that he was familiar with from his other books on these Golden Age secret origins, and a lot of times they, they sort of captured not only the story, but the tone and the era. A little bit more of the simplicity maybe if that's the the word just sort of whatever the opposite of you know a a more 90s house style would have been 
Mm-hmm. You know, panel design, straightforward. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it doesn't. Now the panel design is definitely a leap forward from Golden Age. You know, where you're not getting like eight squares per page. You get different shaped panels and stuff. But yeah, it's it's a straightforward storytelling style in an era where stories weren't necessarily told that way. Yeah, and you're right. He, he this Mike Clark had done All Star Squadron uh, for Who's Who. Who's Who. He had done uh, Neptune Perkins and the Wanderers. <laughs> oh, the Wanderers. And uh, he's going to draw a Legion Secret Origins coming up too. Mm. Now, for me, I love the first splash page. Mm-hmm. I love that image, that image of Dr. Midnight. But I don't think the art in the rest of the story is ever as good as that image. Um, there are times when it looks like on page four when you get the cop standing on the fire escape and Mike kind of climbing up, they, they're very boxy looking. It's very, it, it's, there, there seems to be like a lack of energy in some of this. It's, I, I don't know. Like the, the art didn't impress me. I thought that first image, that first splash page just blew me away. And everything after that, I was like, is this the same guy? Cause this isn't doing it for me. Not bad, not distracting, just plain. I would agree. It, it, it felt like a, a 60s comic, which is a little more – again, I go back to that word straightforward. But yeah, it wasn't engaging uh, or I shouldn't say it wasn't as exciting as it could be. I, although I, I found it fine. I mean I didn't – at no point did I go, that panel's poorly rendered or that looks like crap. It was just – it was fine. Mm-hmm. You're just too critical. Get over yourself. I'll try. Starting tomorrow. Okay, uh, any other thoughts or notes on the secret origin of Dr. Midnight, Shag? Um, for those of you who are yelling at your Zune, yes, I'm well what? aware that uh, Dr. Midnight intersects with the Starman legacy. I'm not going to mention it here because I refuse to spoil anything from James Robinson's Starman. Just leave it at that. Go read James Robinson's Starman, please. All of you. Stop what you're doing and forget the feedback segment. Just go read Starman and then come back. Chris and Cindy Franklin occasionally cover those stories on the Supermates podcast, and they'll probably get to that storyline in seven or eight years. Do you think that soon? Oh, my gosh. That seems like a long time. Well, they've done two. <laughs> Have they covered two stories? In a year. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. So. <laughs> or two. No, they've covered more than two stories. They've covered a handful of stories, but only two episodes. Yes. Right, so. right. So. Anyway. Uh, we we love the Secret Origins podcast, friend of the show. We love the sake. We love we love the Secret Origins podcast. Yeah, we I'm love it like, a lot, Ryan. Uh, why are love. you talking in third person? <laughs> that's, that's how I do. That's, okay. So, like Julius uh, Caesar. We love the Supermates podcast. Yes, we do. Okay. Um, you said you've read the uh, the three issue Matt Wagner Peter Cross series. Hell to the yeah. Matt Wagner and John K. Schneider the third. You can still get you can still find it in trade in some places. Uh, I actually doc- I think it was re released not too long ago. Oh, okay. I think they and by the way, it. Midnight's spelled kind of screwy. If you've never looked for it, it's M I D hyphen N I T E. That's mm-hmm. how Dr. Midnight spells his name. The Beth Chapel version spelled it like the regular word midnight, but uh, if when you go looking for it, it's M I D hyphen N I T. And that's a three issue miniseries. It was exceptional. Highly recommend it. Uh, if you want to read the first five adventures of 
Charles McKnighter as Dr. Midnight, you can pick up the JSA All-Stars Archive. These are the big, thick archive books. It does include the first five issues of that from All-American Comics. Then, you know, seek out the All-Star Squadron reprints or the single issues. He does show up in there. And, again, my, my personal fave would be the Justice Society of America 10-issue series um, done by Len Straczynski and Mike Paraback. It's just gorgeous. Now, Dr. McKnighter doesn't have a huge role in it. It's not enormous, but you know what? It's a great series it's a lot of fun and the art is amazing so and then you know pick up the all the, all the jsa runs with jeff johns and stuff like that because you know the peter peter cross versions in there and he's great i mean he continued to be you know that that's that's a serious loss to the dc universe there we go with the new 52 with peter cross at the end of flash or you know with flash point happening he's gone he, he's not around at all he never existed now i guess and he was a great utility character around the DC universe. He would show up, sort of like Oracle, you know, not when she was in her own book. Or she would just show up in another book and help out for a panel or two and then move on. That was his role, and he was great in it. I think they had the opportunity with the Earth 2 world, because that was a world that didn't have a Superman and a Batman. And then after a while, they realized, hey, <laughs> we kind of need Superman and Batman in order to sell this book. So <sighs> That... I am not a fan of the Earth 2. I, I stuck with it for years, uh, for the first couple of years of the Earth 2 series, and I just I finally gave up, and then they did the whole year-long story. I'm, it's not for me. My JSA ended at Flashpoint. I, I, I started to mention earlier, Dr. Midnight has had several cameos on cartoons like Young Justice and Justice League Unlimited and stuff like that. Rarely a speaking role, but he does show up. So when you watch those cartoons, watch for him in the background. You'll see him around doing all the medical stuff. He's great. Awesome character. Uh, Stella, any recommended readings for Dr. Midnight? Um, <laughs> I don't have anything. No. So you're not a real fan. I don't know why I had you here. You know what? Number one, rude. <laughs> and also, number two, I, I know nothing about this. So, you know, it's best to uh, just plead ignorance and, and let other people do the talking. Well, we are. I, that all the time, anyways. I have this problem a lot. She she yeah. tends to follow me around, Ryan. It's it's awkward. We show up at the same place. And I'm like, you knew I was coming here, Stella. Why are you here? And it's it happens. So you just learn to deal with it. Yeah. No, we we appreciated your fresh take on the character. Uh, it it does. It offers a perspective of the character that you can judge based solely on this one appearance. And uh, um, looking at this story, would you want to read more of this character? Did this did this origin adequately intrigue you and make you want to seek out more Midnight stories? Yeah, I think so, especially because he very much reminded me of uh, the Silver and Bronze Age, Barbara Gordon, where you know she only had about eight to ten pages to, to get her story done. And, and oftentimes, she, when she wasn't dealing with Killer Moth or the Cavalier, she had her <laughs> own... It's true, she does. Um, she had her own little street level, and, and that was really what she was dealing with. So I, I felt like um, it was a good match, a good pairing to have in this particular issue. And it's interesting. I mean, you guys pulled it apart, you know, this and the original origin to show the differences. But when I was reading that original origin, I thought, like, man, this secret origin, number 20, was verbatim almost. I thought it was very faithful to what that original was. Yeah, that was how Roy Thomas tended to approach his secret origins, and sometimes that worked, and sometimes it did not. Um, I've talked about that at length, but uh, anyway, do either of you have any final thoughts about the origin of Dr. Midnight or Batgirl? Dr. Midnight totally was knocking boots with Black Canary. It's awesome. <laughs> how did those two get together? Uh, they were on the JSA together. 
Yeah, it happened pretty early on in that JSA run. Was yep. she pre? So that was a pre Green Arrow situation. No, that was after. No, that was Whoa. well. It's actually when Green Arrow would have been dead, I think. Oh no! Was it? Actually, or, yeah, yeah, uh, yes, because well. it would have been ninety nine. So he was yeah. he was alive soon afterwards, and then eventually she dumped him. Right. Uh, which, was, which was sad for Pieter, because you know. Yeah, because yeah, because that the JSA that kicked off right or uh, like a few, two years after Birds of Prey started, because she was in that that costume that I hate for a while. <laughs> With her jacket, you don't like that one? No, the the one that was sort of. It, it was like black and blue with like weird yellow highlights and stuff like yeah. that. It was, oh, like it, was the, it was the Gary Frank. The Gary Frank early. redesign, but it was after yeah. that when he actually put pants on her, which I, gotcha. I didn't like anymore. So anyway. Um, <laughs> I was so, just trying to be snarky. So, so um, Stella, thank you very, very much for gracing the Secret Origins podcast with your <laughs> presence. Uh, if my listeners want to hear more from you with or without the irredeemable shag – like drawing at your ear. Where can people find you online? Oh gosh. Well, if you're uh, sick of hearing Jag, then maybe you should just be sure to check out the info, uh, info, the information on the different iTunes episodes to see which one that Shag appears and Shag doesn't appear. But uh, he has come on sometimes for background Oracle. But my own homegrown, not um, human growth hormone injected podcast is <laughs> is Batgirl the Oracle and you can find that at the batmanuniverse.net and I'm also on a bi-weekly podcast on the Batman Universe and it's the comic podcast where we review all the issues of things that Batman appears in and I'm also on <laughs> Comic Book Film Review, and you can. <laughs> where, where is that podcast, Stella? <laughs> I'm so sorry, it happened again. Comic book. Hold on, hold on. Sam. She's googling it, folks. She doesn't even know where to find the podcast she's on. Okay, it is at um, cbfreview.lipson.com, and that's when we take. A comic, uh, a film based off of a comic, whether it's a graphic novel or else something else, and we talk about it. So this most recent one, I led the, the discussion on three hundred. Hmm. So if you're interested in that, I bet you, you did. I did. I, I enjoyed all of the abs and pectoral <laughs> muscles that were on the screen. That's why I picked it. That's why I picked it. So, it's not yes, that different if we had, uh, you know, if we had video webcast or video Skype this tonight with me and Ryan. Really, it'd been kind of the same. Do you, Do you podcast without your shirt on? I'm just saying. I was gonna say yeah, but that's you know, it's it's not the same pleasing image. So oh boy. I was going for anyway. Brian's not wearing pants anyway right now. Yikes. So. Why would I? <laughs> oh, Stella, before we go, I do actually have one question that I wanted to ask you. Okay. Um, Killer Moth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is he the greatest villain of all time or simply one of the greatest villains of all time? Uh, and we're talking about DC Comics history or we're talking about Batman mythos? What? Talking about your headcanon. Oh, my head cannon. One of. One of. Because there, I have some special... And it's funny because I like the C-list and below characters, I think, more than the than the regular ones. Like, over in Spider-Man. Spider-Man's one of my, my favorites. Shocker is one of my favorites. <laughs> I so, bet he is. But, but, hey, 
okay. But you know, Moth has like a super special place in my heart, and I I really uh, I love to see him, and and I think that he and Batgirl, you know, you can't have Batgirl without having Killer Moth pop up at least once. Uh, Shag, do you have any, do you have any projects you would like to promote? <laughs> uh, you can find me over at the Fire and Water podcast. In fact, Stella was kind enough to grace us with her presence <gasps> recently. Yes. Uh-huh. You can check that out. Um, at the time of this release, go back a, a month or two, and you'll find an episode about Thrill Killer, where we talked about Barbara Gordon, Batgirl, and Robin, and uh, the Howard Chaikin, Dan Brereton, awesome Elseworld story. Ooh. But uh, yeah, Firewater Podcast is dedicated to Aquaman and Firestorm. We cover Who's Who. We cover all kinds of DC projects over there. You can also find me at firestormfan.com and across most of the social medias under that same handle. So I'm out there in the wild. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for being on this episode. I had a great time, you know, sort of. (laughs) (laughs) At least the parts where you're talking to Stella, right? Two things before we get to the listener feedback section. First is, the Secret Origins podcast is now available on Stitcher. If you're looking for an alternative to iTunes, you can check out this show on Stitcher's radio format. The second is terrific news for a lot of fans of this show. And if you heard the promo during the Batgirl segment, you should already know about this. There is now a podcast dedicated to the original Captain Marvel, the Shazam cast. It's a new show, only about two episodes so far, and it looks like it's going to be bi-weekly. The host, a guy named Jeff obviously has a lot of love for the Mightiest Mortal and a lot of knowledge about the character's history in comics. There's a website for the show, shazamcast.com, a Facebook page, a Twitter feed, lots of ways to follow the show and give Jeff your support. I highly recommend that. Okay, Secret Origins Episode 19 received Twitter favorites and retweets from Anthony Durso, Between the Pages, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Foreign Editions, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Luke Dobb, Michael Bailey, Sin, Trekker Talk, and especially the Film and Water podcast, which has promoted the show several times over the last couple weeks, and I keep not including them in this section. My bad. Greg Rougeau tweeted, The Guardian portion is perhaps the best encapsulation of Roy Thomas's contributions to Secret Origins. I'm not sure if Greg meant that as a compliment or criticism or simple matter of fact. Facebook likes, mentions, and shares came from Alan Middleton, Anthony Durso, Chad Bokelman, Clinton Robson, Comic Reflections, David Foster, Derek William Crabb, Gotham Shiorin, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, J.C. Burrow, Jimmy McGlinchey, Joe Crawford, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Benning, Leon Bain, Luke Dobb, Max Romero, Michael Wagner, Nicholas Prom, Patrick Conley, Radio vs. the Martians, Shag, Sean Engel, Sean Merrick, Sean Myers, Siskoid, Terry Wood, Tim Wallace, Trekker Talk, Trevor Owen Williams, and Van Z. Gord Tolton posted on the Facebook page, My only criticism with the 1970s Freedom Fighters came from the first page of the first issue, when Earth-X heroes moved to Earth-1. You have a planet that fought World War II for 30 years solid, is suddenly liberated, and there's nothing for superpowered characters to do? Yeah, another example of why they need multiple Earths. As I said, Uncle Sam and the Freedom Fighters work best if they are the underdogs, which means their America has to be vulnerable to invasion if not already taken over. 
Van Z, who I mentioned was particularly fond of the Guardian story, said, A-plus Guardian origin by Roy Thomas. Don't listen to the Debbie Downers. I think those are just voices in my head. Hmm, maybe. Greg Arujo asked, didn't Jim Harper end up being related somehow to Roy Harper? Because, you know, the name Harper? I can't remember who introduced this idea, but it sounds like something Roy Thomas would do. And Clinton Robinson and Gord Tolton responded to that comment, with Clinton thinking Jim Harper was the brother of Roy's grandfather, and Gord saying that it happened in the Bob Rosakis era of Teen Titans. Moving on to the WordPress page, Siskoid and Diablo Frank have been catching up on some older episodes. Frank commented on episode 16, which was the Warlord Amazing Man Our Man issue. He talked about not feeling Warlord or Amazing Man, and not liking Our Man. He said, Our Man and the Atom have always been in close competition for JSA or I have the least patience with. I definitely hate Our Man's costume more, with the hideous application of an unspectacular color scheme and that stupid hourglass around his neck. It seemed like every story I ever read with him offered the reminder that he only had one hour of power, whether he was holding it in reserve or stressing over its dwindling. I found his power set too limited to justify his also having such a severe limitation on having any powers at all. Plus, I mostly did just say no, and I had too many unpleasant experiences with junkies growing up to see Rex strung out Tyler as a hero. Beyond my great disdain for the character, the story was more than I am willing to bear at this time. Uh, later on, Frank says, The part where you guys talk about E. Nelson Bridwell speculating about Wendy on Super Friends being the Earth-1 version of Our Man's Baby Mama, that is exactly why we needed the Crisis on Infinite Earths. Since Ryan repeated himself on this topic, I'll reiterate that Earth-2 is to DC Comics as Zero or Caffeine-Free are to Coca-Cola, a niche market product. Siskoid, from Siskoid's Blog of Geekery and the Lonely Hearts Romance Podcast, also commented on this episode, saying Our Man was his favorite member of All-Star Squadron. He was the lead in the issue that made me want to pick up the book every month and even go back to collect it all. He also said, Amazing Man is something I read late in life, like only in the last couple of years, and it was very enjoyable, even touching. My thoughts mirror Rob's, except that I would have mentioned the Fred Hembeck pages, which were the Zoot Sputnik comic inside the comic. On to episode 17, which was Adam Strange and Dr. Occult, Frank said, Like seemingly the majority hereabouts, I took to the visual of Adam Strange more than the character, and, as is their way, DC keeps changing the visual instead of enhancing the character. The thing is, science fiction got started in prose during a time when that was the only way for an audience that often lived its entire life, never having traveled outside of their state, could experience the foreign and fantastic. Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers were such big hits as newspaper strips because they were essentially the first sequential visual representations of science fantasy, beyond covers and spot interior illustrations. Both begat movie serials, beginning the transition of the most popular medium for consumption of science fantasy to celluloid from newsprint. Even still, Adam Strange arrived before widespread access to television and told complete stories in full color for a dime. You could succeed on that variation of the formula back then. But Strange's fortunes turned for the same reason as Bucks and Flashes. They're one-dimensional characters. Their worlds may be even more visually colorful than Star Wars, but the personalities are anemic and the story's dispassionate grade-school science puzzles. Adam Strange would be a solid infotainment mobile app game for K-6, but he's a pretty lame comic book character. 
My angle would be to kill off Adam Strange in a meditative piece like the death of Captain Marvel so he doesn't come back, then transfer most of his trappings to Alana Strange to effectively gender-swap the property. Their daughter is half-human, which in itself would be reason enough for the Ranian to maintain ties to Earth, but they also still need our world as a stud farm. Ran needs semen. It's a hook unto itself. Then I'd do something like Future Shock Crisis on Infinite Timelines, where viable properties from DC's catalog of former futures would all end up on the same planet, star system, whatevs, which Alana Strange would police. Not entirely dissimilar from Countdown to Infinite Crisis or Future's End in Cast, but closer to Annihilation in effect. I can't name anybody else from Ron, but Sardath, but I know Commandy, The Atomic Knights, Manhunter 2070, and Omek, most of whom have done faceplants in contemporaneous reboots, would be nifty supporting players in their classic forms and a shared continuity. So, in summary, single but ready-to-mingle parent Alana Strange as Star-Lord of a modern-day futureverse, generated by a crossover event with actual repercussions, perhaps as an ensemble piece or team book a la Guardians of the Galaxy. Very interesting take. I wouldn't be opposed to that at all. I, I think there might be something really interesting there. Uh, Frank continues, Folks sometimes forget that I'm a duly deputized policeman over DC Comics podcasts, and I'm afraid that I have to issue a citation to Ryan Daly for overuse of a personal opinion. Interesting. I didn't know you could do that to me on my own podcast, but okay, go on. Frank says, I'll let you off with just a warning over telling everyone repeatedly in detail how you prefer the multiverse to the post-crisis timeline as it relates to Golden Age heroes, but giving us your theory on the cancellation of Constantine on two consecutive episodes is way over the line, mister. I still kind of agree with you, but through repetition I'm wavering because it occurs to me that a whole lot of the trouble was it's coming out on NBC. Not only did it do perfectly fine CW numbers, but that neglects the issue of its failing to recognize that it was a watered down adaptation of a mature reader series. On cable, with cursing and nudity and more graphic violence, Constantine could have been an upgrade on Supernatural instead of a downgrade on a lesser Keanu Reeves movie. Ange has said that the show was somewhat faithful to the early Jamie Delano issues, which reminds me that I didn't much like those and strongly favor the Garth Ennis run. Plus, the early years of Hellblazer coasted on familiarity with the character's highs as a very popular Swamp Thing supporting player, while the show had to start cold. Uh, I mean, yeah, I did make that point in two episodes in a row. In my own defense, I recorded those episodes a month apart, but, uh, okay, I get the point. Uh, Frank says, The only issue of Who's Who I ever bought new off the stand featured Dr. Occult as a highlight entry, and I'd jump on a project that reflected the appeal displayed there, but no such book seems to exist. The sample pages offered for the origin story look like a hasty Marshall Rogers effort for a low-selling genre anthology in the 1970s, where what I like about Occult is that he appears to be Dick Tracy bypassing his proto-Batman rogues in favor of the outright supernatural. That direction is a far cry from the fruitful offspring of Karl Kolchak that sank Constantine in the mire of hip modern monster fighters. You do a completely straight, sober, humorless, and grisly police procedural along the lines of law and order, with Dr. Occult as the Joe Friday-type lead, except with vampires and werewolves replacing the rapists and murderers. Get into the loopholes employed in succubi solicitation, or whether zombies meet the legal standards for understanding their Miranda readings, or the difficulty in getting a search warrant against a child-baking witch when the Wiccan Anti-Defamation League has the ear of City Hall. Spend more time looking at the dire circumstances of Chupacabra victims. Baton Lash meets CSI. 
Also, merging Dr. Occult with Rose Psychic means we lose a veteran female supporting character, not that we gain some sort of quasi-trans hero. Diablo Frank, of course, is the host of numerous podcasts, including the Marvel Superheroes podcast and the Underguides, as well as DC-centric shows dedicated to Wonder Woman, The Atom, and of course, Martian Manhunter. He's been celebrating the 60th anniversary of Jean Jones on the Idol Head of Diablo podcast. You've got to check out that anniversary episode. He's gone through an astonishing amount of old audio interviews and transcriptions to basically make something that's half oral history and half testimonial from dozens of comic book creators that have contributed to the Martian Manhunter's six decades of stories. Okay, on to last week's episode featuring Uncle Sam and Guardian. Jeff Nettleton, who appeared last episode, said, One notable Uncle Sam appearance we failed to mention was the excellent episode of Batman the Brave and the Bold, Cry Freedom Fighters. Sam is in his glory, as he calls upon Batman and fellow Quality Comics veteran Plastic Man to help free the citizens of Quard from the domination of the Weaponers. It's a really fun episode, with Batman getting a bit of a patriotic makeover at one point. Plus, Plas's new rendition of Yankee Doodle. It's one of the more accessible Freedom Fighters stories. And later in the thread, Jeff said, I encountered the Guardian via Mal Duncan in the Teen Titans when he took the name and put on a version of the costume. That would be it until All-Star Squadron, and then both the new stories in the post-crisis Superman and in the Jimmy Olsen comics, which I lucked into finding most of at my local comic shop. The Jimmy Olsen book is gonzo fun and my favorite of the Kirby Fourth World books, though Mr. Miracle is a very close second. Rob Kelly from the Aquaman Shrine, the Fire and Water podcast, and the Film and Water podcast said, I feel weird about ever saying anything bad about Kirby, but that shot of the Guardian is, uh, not among his best work. I like the cover concept, but it doesn't quite work. If I was a billionaire, I'd hire Alex Ross and Steve Rude to do a new version. That would be killer. I love the talent you mentioned, Rob, but clarify, would you want Ross painting over Rude's pencils, or Ross doing the Guardian and Rude doing Uncle Sam, or the opposite? Just wondering there. Uh, Rob also complimented the episode's guests, Jeff and Michael, though Rob did it in a classy, complimentary way, not as an insult to me like Shag always does. Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks and the new 90s Comics Retrial podcast said the Uncle Sam origin made his head spin. And remember, Nathaniel's doing a podcast where he's going to voluntarily reread comics like X-Force No. 1 and Deathmate. He says, So Sam merges with the spirit of a nation that doesn't exist yet, who is also named Sam and happens to look exactly like him. And that's not even getting into the fact that the panel of him catching a tank shell looks like he's urinating light out of a steel phallus. Okay, yeah, Murphy Anderson probably could have broken away from the original art style in that panel. Nathaniel adds, I also share Ryan's views on characters like the Guardian. If a person has the means to take on crime and corruption in their civilian life, then you need to make more effort to explain why they would turn vigilante. It feels like Thomas either failed to properly update the original origin story, or he assumed that everybody just rolls with, and he put on a mask and fights crime, because, you know, comics. Either way, it comes across as lazy writing, which is a shame as the Guardian is one of those characters I've been peripherally interested in since seeing him show up in the Death of Superman storyline and going, wait, who's that guy with the sweet shield? 
Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, I like the Uncle Sam side of this issue because I think it is just lushly rendered by Murphy Anderson. My first exposure to Uncle Sam was from the 70s Freedom Fighters book. I very much enjoyed his Vertigo mini as a look at national symbols and politics, but for some reason, the most vivid memories are from Crisis. The psycho-pirated Sam punching Steel's face in and his telling Lady Quark to try and forgive Pariah and that everyone should team up. As for Guardian, I have just never really liked the guy. I am ready for slings and arrows, but I like the Grant Morrison reboot in Seven Soldiers. I had completely forgotten about the Manhattan Guardian as part of Morrison's Seven Soldiers of Victory. Part of me feels like I need to reread that series, but another part of me thinks there's a reason I remember so little about it. Uh, Professor Allen from the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network said he enjoyed the 70s Freedom Fighters book, but recognizes in retrospect that it's not that great. Jeff R. said, I could never figure out Gangbuster because of my erratic post-crisis Superman reading habits, stopping reading for a long period after the Exile in Space storyline. So when he showed up again, I always wondered why there was suddenly a real person running around using a second secret identity Superman was using during his nervous breakdown. The Guardian worked better and was certainly my favorite of the two DC pseudo-Captains America in this issue. You know, I love the fact that we're giving so many diverse opinions about the characters here. And Chris Franklin from the Supermates and the Power Records podcast said, I've always been a big fan of Murphy Anderson's stuff, and it is definitely clear from the scans he does indeed love the Lou Fine characters. So great to hear Jeff on the show. I always enjoy his insightful comments on all the podcasts he writes into, including Supermates. I'd love to hear Jeff start a DC War comic podcast. Sounds like he was born to do it. Give it some thought, Jeff. I would subscribe to that show yesterday. Chris continues, I'm a big fan of The Guardian. I met him when I was too young to read in an old Superman family that was tying up some loose ends on Kirby's work. I followed him in ASS, worst comic acronym ever. Well, yeah, that's why I usually don't read the abbreviations you guys write, but rather the full name, like All-Star Squadron. And then into Superman Annual number 2. I know exactly what Mr. Bailey speaks of. There was just something about those characters. When the Superman subplots rolled back around to The Guardian, they always got my full attention. While I don't agree with Ryan on Dick Grayson's cop gig, I do get his point on the Guardian lacking proper motivation. I know I keep referencing it, but it seems so odd that Thomas went out of his way to find a new rationale for Bruce Wayne to seek justice as a costumed vigilante, but most of these mystery men are putting on costumes because it's the in thing to do, it seems. I do like Arvell Jones's art, and I agree with Michael that he was a shot in the arm on Squadron at the time. Great episode, Ryan. From a brand spanking new voice to one of the godfathers of comic podcasting, this show is really blowing the doors wide open. That's the trend I hope to continue, guys. As always, big thanks to everyone who wrote in, left a comment, or favorited, or liked, or shared the podcast. Your support is awesome. I also want to thank Stella and Shag for being my guests on this episode. If you had half as much fun listening to us as we had recording... Well, then we had twice as much fun recording as you had listening. Feedback for this show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or at blackcanaryfan or the username Count Druncula. You can also email your feedback to blackcanaryfan at gmail.com and please let me know if the message is private and you don't want it read on a future episode. 
The Secret Origins podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. I know where you at, I bet she's around. always liked this character and uh, purely based on the aesthetic i i love the costume but i love the blindness too and for me he he's a little bit batman and that he's you know he's called you know this sort of dark you know crusader of the night Hello? He, did we lose you can you guys hear I, me i can hear you and i can hear shag but i think it might be he can't hear us shag hang on Oh. <laughs> uh. Shaggy, back? Hey, I'm here now. Were you guys still there together? Yeah. yeah. And we could hear you. Weird. What the hell happened there? My internet's usually very reliable. Okay. Huh. Well. Okay. Last thing I heard you say was uh, you liked the costume and you started to say. I was barely listening because it's you, but uh, that's about the last thing I heard. After that, it was a lot of racist stuff. So, <laughs> <laughs> shit. <laughs> so, okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So uh, I'll kind of pick up because you actually you didn't miss a whole mo- whole lot. But um, uh, I need a second. You just you got me with that one, <laughs> fucker. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. Okay. <sighs> that woke me up. All right. <laughs>